Welcome, welcome everybody to the Spooky Newfie Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Scott Witten, and joining me as always is my old friend and co-host, John Fitz. Hey, you guys. We are a bi-weekly horror movie podcast where each episode we select and discuss two films from a specific subcategory of horror, which are chosen at random from spinning our very own patent-pending Wheel of Horror. So, last episode, John landed on a fiscal year pick, and he's chosen I'm Thinking of Ending Things to talk about, while I landed on a crime horror pick, and I've chosen uh, I Saw the Devil to Discuss. So, I don't know about you, buddy, but I'm pretty excited to talk about two of these. And uh, But before we get into the main attractions, um, didn't know if there's anything on your mind, John, you wanted to discuss. What have you been up to the last couple of weeks, or if there's anything worth discussing that you've been watching besides these two movies? Uh, well, in terms of life, things are busy. Uh, with work, uh, I'm a teacher, as I mentioned before, in St. John's, Newfoundland, so it's kind of finishing up units before the big break and trying to keep kids engaged and interested before, before Christmas break. Aside from that, in terms of what I've been watching, believe it or not, and I I don't know how you feel about this, but I actually am a fan of Christmas movies. Like, I'm oh. sort of like, a, it's a big source of nostalgia for me. Yeah, so, don't worry about that, man. You're talking to the right guy. <laughs> so, we actually started pretty early. I think, like, this week we actually started watching some. Did you really? Yeah, I, seriously. Like, oh, it's, it's bad. So, we started listening <laughs> to Christmas music and uh, watching Christmas movies kind of early. But what we do is we start with ones that are, I'll say, less good, and we, like, work our way up to quality the closer we get to christmas day the better the christmas movies get so like it's a wonderful life which is like a a favorite of ours we'll watch that on christmas day oh gotcha okay okay but we start every year with uh like the real steamers so like we like the first one we always watch is christmas with the pranks i don't know if you have seen that (laughs) the netflix classic yeah oh yeah so that one at this point it's one of those things like it's so bad it's fun to watch and just pick it apart and just laugh at how bad it is so so that one, and we've watched, like, even, like, Jingle All the Way, which oh, is also man. another... That's a go-to. Terrible, but, again, like, fun to watch and that kind of a thing. I think that's almost, like, the definitive terrible but good Christmas movie. That That's almost, like, gotten a cult level of appreciation as the years go by. It's so funny, because I remember when it was out, and I was younger, and it was specifically in theaters, that everyone just kind of was just laughing at it because it's like man this is so stupid and it's like but it wasn't people were laughing at it so i just remember it was like i don't even remember it was a bomb like i don't even know if that made a lot of money at the time type of deal and then it kind of disappeared but yeah like that's a weird one man like you mentioned that the most people and that is like a classic that people go to because it is the it is the definitive shitty good movie for it, Christmas season, it really is, and like any movie with with Arnold is just so it's so it's so quotable, you know, like <laughs> like just any line he can take and just like Arnoldize it and like put his famous Austrian thick accent on it. And, <sighs> and Phil Hartman is so funny, in it, so man. good, <laughs> he's so, so good. good. He plays the straight man so well, like a creepy neighbor. And it's like what annoys me about that movie is it's like I don't know whether to give credit to the filmmaker like i don't know if they were trying to do what they were doing or if it's all an accident and that's that's kind of you know the formula for any good bad movie Mm. do you know what i mean like when you when you when you when you see the scenes and you see the people trying to make this what it is it doesn't work like a sharknado fuck those movies you know what i mean like i don't i don't like those kind of movies that are going out of their way to be a bad movie but it, people can get away with it. Of course, Sandler's kind of, you know, a template for that, in my opinion. Like, he knows what he's doing when he makes these shitty movies. But this one's a good example where it's like, I don't know if they were meaning to do that. Like, were they trying to make this heartfelt fucking movie where this kid almost dies at the end of it? And, like, you know, these people are monsters. <laughs> my gut is that they were. My gut is that they were trying. <laughs> what about you? What have you been, uh, how's life been with you? Have you been watching anything? 
Good, good, man. Um, I'm not in the Christmas thing yet. Usually the tradition with me and the wife is like, uh, it's the first Friday of December is where we just kind of hold out everything. Like everything holds up. It, it could land at any point. It could be like, you know, the first of December or whatever. It's December 7th. But that Friday, first Friday of December is when we officially start listening to music, bust out the first uh, Christmas movies, and we put the tree up and all that jazz, right? So that's what I'm looking forward to next week. And I haven't really touched any Christmas movies, but I've already got it lined up what I'm going to be watching. I'm kind of like the the flip side of what you do by the sounds of it in terms of Christmas movies. When we start watching, I have a terrible tendency to latch on to like five to ten ones that I really, really, really like to watch. For the sake of, like you said, nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. Just getting you in that time of year. And I'll watch certain movies like 10 to 15 times over Christmas season. Like between Hollow or Halloween, Home Alone 1, 2... Jingle All the Way, fuck, what's another elf? Things like, they're the kind of just like, whether I'm actively watching them or not, they'll always be revolving on the background in TV, whether I'm just puttering around the house or something. So, yeah, come December 4th, man, like my PVR is just going to be stocked full of these flicks, and I'm just going to kind of just immerse myself into that. And that's just, that's kind of how I handle the Christmas season. It's weird because watching all these movies on repeat as well gets my music vibe in because it because they always contain like certain specific songs that bring me back to a certain point when i was a kid listening to them right mm -hmm. so yeah i'm kind of weird with consuming christmas movies it's just i can't wait to basically rewatch the same thing i've seen a million times because it makes me feel a certain way like really? and i feel like without a doubt home alone one and two are that definitive moment in time where i remember what it feels like as a kid to be a christmas time so that's usually my go-to to movies so but yeah, anyways, I've been watching those, yeah, but soon to come. Maybe next episode I'll be blabbing about them more. Um, what I actually have been watching. Uh, let's see. I watched one on Prime. It's called I See You. And it's kind of similar in vain, actually, because I had the crime horror pick this time around. And I don't want to get into it too much, because like, when we're talking about here of kind of recommendations, where we're not letting the listeners know ahead of time, I don't want to like throw any spoilers out here for people that for movies that people aren't prepared that we're going to talk about. So I'll kind of, like, hold my cards in terms of specific, you know, movies I'm recommending here just, like, on a whim. But this one I see you is pretty interesting. It, again, is in the crime horror genre. And it's kind of straightforward in ter terms of how it goes about what the actual plot is. But what's really interesting to note about the movie itself is the way... It's hard to explain without give giving any spoilers, but... You should go into it knowing as little as possible as you can about it, but I'll set it up for something to note before you go into it. They play with the structure of the expectations of Act 1, 2, and 3, and the one thing I'll say is that once it jumps out of Act 1 and Act 2, and same thing for Act 3, it's kind of a very sharp pivot, the way the narrative mm. kind of turns, and if anyone's who's seen it, who is listening here now, they'll immediately know what I'm talking about, but... It wasn't like a life-changing movie or anything like that, but it really was interesting in terms of the way they went about it. And I, I was really satisfied with the conclusion of the movie. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone who's a fan of like true crime and stuff like that, yeah. right? So it, it was an interesting watch, I gotta say. Just for, you know, sake of just throwing something on in an afternoon off of Prime. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen ICU. I, I thought that was a really strong one. One of the things about that movie, it's almost like, there's, it almost feels like couple of movies in one yeah and yeah the protagonists i think kind of shift shifts shifts as shifts. well um it's like I, it's like i respect what they're trying to do they didn't hit all they didn't hit it out of the park 
but I see like materialistic like I can see the writers and what they're trying to kind of squish together here and it's a pretty tight movie too I think it was another thing it's two hours again I respect the effort and what they were going for but it almost lost me halfway through is kind of what I'm trying to say but as it drove on and it moved into the third act it got my interest again mm. and it because I didn't know you're right. It was it was really kind of surprising the way it shifted protagonist is kind of the best way to say. It. Again, I don't want to kind of get delve into too much spoiling yeah. anything, but yeah, what did what did you think of that uh, flick? I, I enjoyed it honestly. It um, it, there was a I want to I guess without giving too much away, there is a twist ending at the end. I'd say about three quarters of the way of the movie, I could kind of see it coming. But when I did see it coming, it was pretty jarring. And yeah, pretty shocking. Like I really did. And it not. worked, right? It did. Yeah. It did. I think it, it did a good job tying things up. Where, in my opinion, it was on the cusp of like completely losing my focus and interest. Because you're right, when you take the risk of pivoting your focus and putting your energy into focusing on a set character for a certain amount of time, and then all of a sudden saying like, "Oh, look at this guy over here," mm -hmm. it, it is a bit. It's it's a lot to ask of the audience. Right. And I think again, it almost worked against them. But I think the payout by the third act and seeing the direction they were going, because I think you're right. I think they kind of set it up where, uh, fuck, I'm trying again. I'm trying not to ruin it here, but I'll just, I'll just finish my thought here and we can move on. But I think I respect the fact that a certain point came in the third act where the number of jumps in terms of the shift they were trying to do without just making it a standard point A to B story told. I did respect the ending, is what I'm trying to say, and I think the payoff is worth it. And I think it was, like I said, it's a good little, little reasonable watch, and it really fits in the good category of like crime horror, in my opinion. Yeah, first time I'd seen Helen Hunt in a movie, I felt like in a, in a while. I, I, did she like? Am I crazy? Is she like? What is it? Did she have work done in her face, or has she lost like 20 pounds? Like, there's something like she looked very different, and that, that's the first thing my wife said to me. Is like, is that Helen Hunt? Like, she just there was something off about it because I haven't seen her in like probably yeah, a decade and anything. So. I don't know what At this it was. point, I just assume everybody has work done. So, like, I'm not sure what exactly it is, but there's something different about Helen Hunt. Something's yeah. going on with that lady's face, and I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, another flick I checked out, um, if anyone's a fan of, like, anthology horror, is uh, the Mortuary Collection. This is, uh, I think it's a Shudder specific movie. I don't know if it's on just on Prime itself, but I'm a big fan of anthology movies, all shapes and sizes. I know. It's kind of just like a short story collection in terms of reading as well, like which I'm a fan of. Like I love like uh, Stephen King short story books. I know the risk you take with going that route is there's always a stinker in there somewhere, and then you know how many gems are in this collection. So it's always that mixed bag of risk you're going to take, and it's usually the way they work, whether it's VHS or Creepshow or any of these old anthologies. There's always one that stands above all of them, mm. you know, of the four or five stories that are told. So, but the one thing I got to say about this, this was a very, I was very surprised at how well-rounded every story was. Uh, there wasn't like a one that I was not solely not interested in. Every one of them kept my attention at the very least. And the one thing I really respected about it in terms of an anthology movie is that you always have some generic umbrella story narrative which un over encompasses the stories being told which so introduces it's a, the yeah, movie like yeah. what's a reason for someone to be told these stories right mm. and that's I always find there's never effort put into that narrative because you don't need it to be all you need it to be is a start and an end point and then maybe it's some little clever fucking thing at the end to kind of just like say gotcha but what this movie did really well I found more than any other anthology is that it really does have a 
um, an effect on the rest of the movie, and it's not so much slapped together. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really refreshing seeing an anthology where the narrative around it was just as important as the stories being told, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. No, I uh, I believe I, I'm a, I think I started watching. Did this come out this year? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's just, I just kind of stumbled upon it like literally a month ago, I think. I think I did start watching this, but maybe didn't finish it. But uh, I think I know what you're talking about. At the beginning, the each of the stories are connected to the the guy who owns the mortuary yeah, okay, or something exactly. like that. Is that the idea? Yeah. He's like some creepy old stereotypical looking spooky dude. And then some girl comes in and basically wants to work for him in the mortuary because there's a sign up. So then, yeah, it's kind of tongue in cheek because they're going out of their way to show you. It's like, oh, I'm going to tell you spooky stories. And that's the road, uh, the route they end up going down. But yeah. it, but again, like, they, they're they aware of what they're doing. It's not mm-hmm. meta to the fucking level of, like, Scream and stuff we were talking about. But again, they're clearly paying homage to this structure of storytelling. And I did appreciate the amount of work and character they added to these. Mm-hmm. They, you know, sometimes the runtime and, like, the, the wraparound is usually, like, five to ten minutes. I'd say this is probably 15 to 20 minutes of the whole runtime. Right. And that was refreshing to see because, I mean... Every great anthology, I mean, I can tell you I have time, but I forget what even the through line is. You just yep. remember the stories being told themselves, right? Absolutely. So I thought it was pretty cool. It was, a, it was a good watch, and I highly recommend to anyone who's going that route in terms of horror. Uh, the only other thing I'll point out is, I guess just, you know, for the sake of what I've been interested in watching outside of horror, I mean, I'm kind of a Leo DiCaprio fix lately, just kind of getting into some of his older ones. I've rewatched Aviator and Catch Me If You Can. And I'm assuming have you seen both? Oh yeah, books? absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it was really interesting rewatching them, and um, I was always a big advocate for the Aviator. I always thought that was one of Scorsese's more underrated absolutely. flicks. But absolutely. this time around, I forgot because I haven't seen it in years. I forgot how long it was. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like three hours long, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I found this go around. I was I was uh, a little. It was wearing on me a little more than I remembered. But what's always cool about that movie is that I feel. This might be a bit over the top, but I feel like that, from a straight-up acting standpoint, I feel like that is actually DiCaprio's best front-to-back performance Mm, as a portrayal of a character. I think Wolf of Wall Street is his funnest performance. Mm. That is the most enjoyable character he's created. Obviously, he's a real person, but... Two of them, all right, if that's the case, but... He like that's the funnest one, more engrossing role. It sucks you in. Like it's yeah. such a fun movie. Yeah, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street is, but The Aviator, especially the fact that I mean you got, it's back in like you know the Depression era, just coming out of it in the thirties and stuff, right? It's a very unique time in in America, and he has to represent this character from his like twenties all the way up until like his forties, right? Yeah, and represent him going through some insane changes and transformations as a character. I mean, the way in which Howard Hughes, I mean, begins as this, you know, incredibly empowered character, but then deteriorates to the point where he's essentially a recluse. Exactly. Is something which, you know, like, requires a lot of, you know, acting chops to be able to pull that off. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's so great to see him just get the Oscar for Revenant, but I feel like you couldn't model a more career Oscar than him getting that. Now, I'm not downplaying the Revenant at all, but it's just, it's, it's really ironic that he wins an Oscar for the most un-Leo performance you could possibly imagine, where if you're, if you're going to show a highlight reel of his, you know, greatest achievements and stuff, it's going to be him screaming at someone. You know, it's going to be fucking Django where he's smacking his ta- hand on the table, ripping it open and stuff, and like yelling at whoever. Like, that's him at his best, his peak. That's why it's like, 
this role of Howard Hughes is such a blend of the two, mm. and he's just I, I've never it's so amazing to someone who's so his he's not a huge guy and he doesn't look intimidating, but for someone who can just exude charisma and confidence like him, mm. I mean he can get anyone in the room to listen to him. Is what's so shocking about it, and it's just you can even just see it from this like decades ago, like how it was just always there. I mean, God, you can see it. In, fucking 90s and stuff don't get me wrong but this was when i think he this was his best performance that it's too bad he didn't get the oscar for in my opinion because i think like jamie fox beat him that year he's playing ray or something i think yeah that sounds about right and it uh, makes sense so yeah he was like that was good and catch me if you can i just love that movie that's a better movie i think i think catch me if you can is a better movie than the aviator like man oh man the pace of that is so unbelievably entertaining and just the bopping around and the the aesthetic of it like yeah, the absolutely. 60s kind of vibe i don't know i just yeah. love it man it got, it's kind of like a fast-paced quick moving madman is completely kind of, kind of how i feel about it you know it's it's a really really interesting time great topic and yeah just that that's a super entertaining one that's now that's a breezy long watch that's about two and a half hours and that's a perfect example of a movie that i don't feel the runtime on it and yeah. i never have seen it a million times now so yeah yeah so good getting back into those loves a good leo dicaprio movie i don't know about you there john <laughs> absolutely <laughs> okay uh, all right, so that's what we've been watching, and I guess uh, any little recommendations we can get out to you guys. So here we go. Let's jump into the first main attraction of this evening. Uh, I Saw the Devil is a 2010 South Korean movie. Uh, it's directed and written by Ji Woon Kim, who's also known actually for a horror movie that I haven't seen from the early 2000s that I'm dying to see called A Tale of Two Sisters. So that's going to be another one that I'm probably going to have on the list at some point, depending on where the wheel lands in the coming future as well. Uh, the two top bill characters are Bi Hyun Lee, who plays Kim Soo Hyun, and Min Suk Chow, who plays Zhang Kyun Chul. Sorry for butchering the, <laughs> those names, listeners. Uh, so, and then to just just to note that Min Suk Chow, I know him very well because I was a huge fan of the movie Old Boy that he starred in. I don't know if you've ever seen that as well from a South Korean filmmaker. And he just kind of like pops in that movie as well. So now we'll get into his chops, I'm sure, as we start talking about the movie more. But uh, yeah, so I had to choose Crime Horror um, just to kind of set the tone here as well for this discussion. This is a movie that I haven't seen and John hasn't seen. So this is the first movie that we were kind of going through here right off the cuff that neither of us have seen before. We got no preconceived notions about how we feel about it. And I actually have no idea what John thinks of this movie. So that's kind of making me even more eager to get into it. So the reason I chose this is uh, obviously I'll end it on crime horror, but I was going in kind of a lot of the stereotypical directions and where I'm sure when I say that a lot of movies pop into you, the listeners' heads as well. Um, they could have been great discussions. I won't really say them now to kind of, you know, set the stage for if we do land that again anytime soon. But this is a movie that stood out to me for decades. I've heard it recommended to me from a number of people that I respect their opinion on. And it's the definitive, uh, in my opinion, like a cult classic in terms of the past decade or two. Uh, I've heard a ton about it, but it's surprisingly been spoiler-free for me for all this time. And I've avoided it like the plague in terms of not reading any reviews ahead of time not getting into the details of it. All I knew is that it started the guy from Old Boy. It's basically the most I knew about it. Um, and yeah, like this is the per this is exactly what it is I wanted to get from, again, going with the experiment we're doing here. It's for it's giving me a reason to jump into some of these ones that I'm more passive on and should be taking the time to watch and should be part of my repertoire in terms of films I've seen, in terms of just, you know, expanding my horizon. 
So that kind of sets the table in terms of why I picked it. Um, I guess now I can just kind of pass the ball to you in terms of like, what do you know about it? Do you have any background? And then we can kind of get into the actual film itself, I guess. Yeah, so full disclosure, um, Scott's knowledge and repertoire of horror movies in general is probably, I can't even imagine, it's probably tenfold mine. So, you know, the fact that Scott wasn't aware of this movie, I mean, there's a pretty good chance that I wouldn't be aware of it either. So I had never heard of this film. I have never seen Old Boy. I, you know, have, have really had no preconceived notions about it whatsoever going in. Um, watched it several days ago and was really blown away by it, frankly. Uh, really loved it. Um, it was haunting. It was, I mean, it's certainly not for the faint of heart. An extremely violent movie. Uh, gripping throughout. I mean, it is, when you talk about movies and the experience of watching them, I mean, this movie is two and a half hours long, and to me, it blew by the experience of watching it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was totally gripped by it the entire time. What was your experience of the Scott? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I'm just going to bury the lead, like, <laughs> right away, in terms of, like, you know, kind of, like, dancing around before we get to the ratings and stuff. But yeah, I love this movie. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's hard to explain. It's like, going into it, I was aware of what I was getting into, but I had no idea how it all played out. It's kind of the best way to say it. Like, I understood the through line of, like, the kind of cat and mouse nature of what was happening, mm -hmm. but I knew no idea in terms of who the characters were, why it was happening, and where it was going to lead to. So, I had that idea, but, yeah, like, I did not know what I was going to get into. I, I even avoided the length of this. I didn't even know how long it was going to be until I kind of flicked it on, so that was a surprise to me as well. Um, and yeah, like I gotta say, this just, I'm gonna probably gush over this as we talk about it, and we hit on some really key factors in terms of why I think this is special and is above and beyond what most would kind of categorize in this. I think this is a bigger movie than just, again, it sounds obnoxious, but even just kind of like labeling it as horror, I think this is one of, if not the most interesting foreign movies I've seen in a long time, mm -hmm. with honestly one of the most polarizing characters i've seen in probably the last five years like i i don't not in a good way i wouldn't say but an interesting way and i'm going to throw out a comparison once we get down the line a little bit and actually get into the characters of this which essentially will be the two leads if you know if you guys if you listen have seen this before it's primarily based around the two lead characters here but we will hit upon different sub characters as we hit different set pieces as well and kind of go through the plot so before we okay so that's kind of the overall notion and overall background, which is not a lot. And <laughs> just kind of given the notion that once we get into this, it's, I'm very glad to hear that you enjoyed it right yeah. out the gate. But now we'll get into the, the crux of things here and the detail in terms of what we did like about it. So I guess the best thing to do is like, let me just give an overall synopsis of this as well. Just give us a starting point and we'll probably go from A to B after that. So a synopsis for the movie uh, is a secret agent exacts revenge on a serial killer through a series of captures and releases. And yeah, I mean, that is a one sentence, honestly, that, it, as vague as that is, it's great that that's a synopsis for anyone just kind of just trying to get an overhead notion of what the movie's about. Because similar to most crime horror, which I wouldn't say there's always twists, which is not, but when you're going into that category, you'd like to know as little as you can about it. There's no point in reviewing this stuff, or I'm sorry, like analyzing and looking into this stuff and spoiling stuff for you ahead of time because it's going to take away the suspense because that's all 
I mean, obviously horror, but crime horror is primarily suspense. It's mm-hmm. getting, it's we, it's where are we getting to? What's the journey? Are we trying to catch something? And like, where is the fucking string gonna get cut where the shit's gonna hit the fan? Mm-hmm. So, uh, th- like that's a vague synopsis, but again, that that pretty much ties up what the through line of this movie is. And I think what's more important about it is not the plot itself, but it's the stories. And set pieces build around this structure is what makes it so unbelievably interesting and unique. And the character, the two lead characters themselves. Yeah, like I guess we could just kind of get into it right off the bat in terms of like how this movie kind of played out. So it opens pretty, you know, generically with just you know opening credit scenes. A young lady is driving in the snow, and then sure enough, she kind of I think what it is she gets a flat tire. Flat tire. And she's stuck on the roadside and kind of left to her own. And we're just kind of in a situation where we're not understanding fully like who she is, who she's talking to. But in a matter of five minutes, the writer is able to outline who she is with relation to the key characters, which mm-hmm. is the fiancé, I believe. Yep. The fiancé of the lead character, Kim, who is the, I believe he's a lead detective or some form of like secret, secret service type of yeah. shtick is how I kind of got that. I don't think they ever really specifically said, but... I got kind of like Secret Service kind of uh, through line for what it is he does. And at the same time, from the opposite perspective of what's happening with the girl, we're also introduced to Zhang, who is the probably the worst person to ever exist on this planet. And this poor girl, who is the reason why these two connect essentially are kind of put in the same scene. And right from the five minute standpoint, we the set the table is set in terms of where the conflict's going to come from, who Zhang is, and who Kim is, and we can probably get into more details of the little nuances of what's happening here as well, but that's pretty much how the movie starts, uh, where he just captures this poor girl. Yep. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, that opening scene is very jarring, and I think for me, there were some elements of it that I found very disturbing. I mean, you had this girl who, we'll say, is murdered in that, in that opening scene, and she's represented, I would say, as a pretty privileged, innocent... Very, that's what I got. I got yeah. extremely innocent from her character. Just, yeah. they, I could tell... Um, I don't know if you felt the same way, and it's also a little weird where um, you're watching a foreign movie and it's not dubbed as well. It's just subtitles. But I don't know if I'm reading too much into certain delivery of lines. Like so, But I, I felt the, the dialogue in the first like 10 to 15 minutes, especially once you get to the media scene... It's very heightened to me. It felt a little exaggerated, mm-hmm. and I felt like she was excessively made to feel innocent. Yeah, I got a, like I got a very just pure good person innocent vibe from her. And I Absolutely. think that's the tone they needed to set to get across who Zhang is, which Absolutely. is even more important, right? Absolutely, and that was also I think underscored through just you know little things like the the soft white steering wheel that she had, right. and the seats were all white, yep. and her skin is fair, and she just just was such a charming young girl so you had this attachment with her right away um and like i was saying it was a bit of a disturbing opening scene because i mean as a um you know someone who's in a long-term relationship i mean it, it's one of the most horrifying things to, to think about having your loved one stuck stranded and then what happens is uh, you know jang is there initially to help her out she's waiting for the 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 tow truck to come and change the tire and then he immediately attacks her and like you said you immediately have this juxtaposition of this horrible awful awful killer and this innocent and this innocent girl 
Um, I don't know if you want to carry on with what happens from there. Well, yeah, and it's like the one thing I want to kind of touch on too yeah. is just again the subtleties of what they do. It's it's not so much uh, once you get into the second act and stuff, they kind of like kind of kind of sway off from doing these little odds and ends. But like they really do a good job of from the get go letting because clearly their focus is on the two leads, is what I said earlier. But they want to use subtleties in terms of showing you the difference and who Kim is because. We'll probably get into a little more once we start getting through the plot line of it, and they, these yeah. characters start to develop. But they went out of their way to show how Kim stepped aside from the rest of the Secret Service agents and went into a private room, took his front down of being a tough guy and very serious, mm. and started to sing a song to her, just right. kind of as you would in your candid moments of being in a long relationship like yeah. that. That says a lot to who he is. And then someone comes in the door and he immediately stops, and he just gets right back in his sternness, right? So I... It's um they do a good job there just showing you that he's not this just kind of like straight faced mm. you know emotionless being because that might be a fa- might be how he would be perceived later in the movie is what I'm getting at mm. so they show you that tiny little subtle choice there to show you how caring he is and how he he isn't just a robot in terms of like you know a secret service agent and what his capabilities are and then from that scene we're talking John was just mentioning where Zhang you know essentially just captures the poor girl we are immediately taken then. Speaking of juxtaposition and what you were saying from that scene, immediately to Zhang's lair, mm. which is like this fucking disgusting, gross, hidden away rat cavern almost, like just hidden away in the depths of wherever the fuck he lives, this monster. And we're, we don't see the sequence of her going there. We're just kind of immediately lifted to there where she wakes up from being knocked out essentially in the car. What I got out of this scene, as disturbing as it was once she's inevitably murdered, is how routine Zhang is Mm. and casual about what he's doing. And I get the notion that, this might sound weird, but it's like, I feel like this character could have been in two other movies, like two decades before he's been doing this. Like I felt like he's been doing this for a long time. And you can see that he's almost near, I wouldn't say the tail end of his career, career as a serial killer but like you can see the mundaneness almost he's is with just the routine of all this like once she's murdered he's there sitting there with like a steaming coffee just in a mug he got placed to the side and he's just like sitting there in a robe and he's insanely casual about this fucking awful situation he has this innocent person in and that again just as subtle as it was for kim talking over the phone and like you know singing that little song to his fiance this shows you how Yes, he's an evil, terrible person, but it shows you where he's at in his life and how probably how long he's been doing this and maybe how he feels about doing this anymore and what enjoyment he gets out of it. And then at the end of it, we see uh, through the jigs and reels, he dismembers the body and gets ready to get rid of her and dispose of her again. Very routine. It looks like he's done this a million times. He wipes things down like he's just basically finishing putting a car together or something. Mm-hmm. And But what he does is he leaves, her wedding ring falls off and falls in a grate. Which, again, is going to be a huge plot point that we'll kind of touch on later. And, like, what did you think of that? Like, I mean, again, did you kind of get any of that notion in terms of how they're trying to lay things out? for Like, like why they meticulously went about that way in terms of presenting how Zhang goes about his deeds, I should say. Yeah, no, I think you explained it well. I, I think exactly it's exactly that. I mean, just showing how routine this is, how, um, you know, this is something he's done so many, many times. But also... I, I think as well, I mean, just to show how heartless he is at the same time, I mean, you have these moments. I mean, you, with the first shot we have of the girl when she's in that layer is her, you know, wrapped up in this transparent bag, and we assume that she's dead. Yeah. 
but uh, as soon as she's kind of taken out of it, she reveals that she is in fact pregnant. Right, right, right. And um, you know, she she says, "Please spare my life." You know, I'm pregnant. You know, please don't kill me. And he just looks at her with these cold, dead eyes. There might be uh, in that when she gives that information to him. I was thinking that there might be, you know, 5% of him might have some sense of sadness or sense of, you know, regret about what he has to do. But in general, I just, again, to go back to your point, if this feels like a very routine process. Yeah. And as soon as she reveals that she is uh, pregnant, he just, I think he, he hits her with the with the fatal blow. Because like, I think you're right. Like, maybe, it's like I'm not giving him any credit at all. Because as we mm. go through this movie, we're going to kind of get into the the layers of these two characters and how complex they are. Mm. But I agree with you. I think he did that immediately just to kind of stop her. Cause he's just mm. kind of at the point where he's like, I've yeah. done this so many times. Just, just, I'm, I'm not in the mood for this today. And maybe the silence, if he does have those feelings of feeling and kind of pity. Second guess it maybe, right? Maybe he just wants to silence that voice right away. Right. So, exactly. Absolutely. So then moving on after that, um, essentially it works out where, you know, he's looking for his fiance and it kind of just rushes to the fact that a body is then found by children under an overpass. And then there's a media, uh, what do you call it? A media flood basically to this area and there's cops combing the riverbed and they ended up finding her dismembered body. And they, so they don't beat around the bush at all. They don't drag things out. They essentially get right to the point that Kim, ends up discovering that, you know, his wife is being found or dismembered in the... And, and it's at that point that we are introduced to the father of the girl as well, um, which is a tough scene. Right, you know, right. He shows up and he's, he's inquiring about whether or not the body has been found. Uh, there was one uh, moment of unintentional comedy, though, that I will say. And this is when, yeah, the head. So yeah, I thought that was odd, like very odd choice. Like, well, just the environment prior to that. So as yeah. soon as they just, so they, they, like I said, they're they're combing the the, the riverbed like underneath the underneath the bridge. But when they find the head, within a few seconds, it's like pandemonium. Yeah, uh, media out. just immediately rushes in trying to get pictures and stuff. And the head is put into a cardboard box, and in amidst everybody running around and screaming, the head flies. The head flies out. <laughs> It's just total chaos. And, and that's kind of what I was saying earlier about how the first, like, 10 to 20 minutes are very heightened. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's, yes. like, it, it was such an odd, like, I would like to, with it being delivered in straight English, like, I'm wondering how the delivery would sound without me just reading and interpreting it a certain way. Because I felt it was a very kind of, like, wacky, slapsticky kind of choice. I thought it was so odd. But, like, that was the completely the atmosphere in the first, like, 20 minutes of this movie, I thought. Like, where... Mm. They're kind of just setting the stage in terms of it, but uh, yeah, I thought the same thing. That one stood out to me as a weird choice of comedy at that point in time. Yeah, I don't know if it was unintentional. It must have been unintentional, I, but it seems. I don't know. I think no, but I think it, I think you're right though. I think it was intentional because like yeah. there is, as we'll get into it again, as I say like as we hit certain points throughout the movie, there is a lot of very very dark humor True. spread in certain scenes and the really fucked up scenes too. Mm. So. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, it probably was intentionally. Yeah, that's a valid point, for sure. Okay, and the, the thing, too, I found uh, that was really just been effective, like, right from the get-go, and I think I kind of, when I'm just looking at my notes now, it's just like I can see it as a through line at a point that always jumped out to me, is the use of household items in this movie for violence is clearly a specific choice. It's not like, you know, this guy or... Kim or any violence that's being done is on a like you know like everyone like like Freddie has his knives and Jason has the machete mm. and you know whatever Michael Myers has like the kitchen knife there is no set weapon 
in this movie is that sounds mm-hmm. weird. And what I was going to say earlier in terms about like cultural choices and maybe how I'm a little naive to certain things, given that this is an Eastern movie, is the lack of presence of guns in this movie. I had the exact same thought, and and, and I don't know. I mean, the, the one does appear yes. towards the end uh, once uh, once Jang becomes, I guess, a little bit uh, incapacitated. Um, he then has to resort to using a gun to but basically get with his one off and be, be on an equal playing field. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> due to injuries, basically. But um, yeah, you're right. It, it relies a lot on hand to hand combat. I don't know if that lends itself to, like I said, like pro. Like I'm a little bit naive to this, but I don't know if that's a history of. Asian action movies uh, owing to, say, like the uh, the samurai films of the past that use a lot of hand-to-hand combat, I don't know, but this, like I said, this film does have a lot of that, but it's household objects. Yeah, and it's just, ve- and just like, I don't know, really specific tools, and again, like every set piece as we bounce from uh, scene to scene, it's, it's clearly a choice that like everything that's being done is a different object, whether it's like a tool... Or just something normal within a house turned into a weapon, just creatively. And, like, even if it's a knife, it's like there's, like, 20 different versions of knives used, depending on where they're... It's like they're always in a situation where they have to grab what's right next to them. Exactly. And then that turns into a deadly object. And I find that that is such an effective way to keep you on your toes when these action scenes happen. Right. Exactly. And it shows the effectiveness of Kim and Jang, who are both almost equally effective killers. Yeah. And it seems as though, you know, whenever they have to defend themselves or fight somebody else, it only requires, like, a little glimpse of something near to them. Yeah. And they can then convert that object into, like, a horribly deadly weapon to exactly. murder someone with. Well, on this note, this seems like a perfect... So now that the stage is kind of set in terms of, like, you know, the beginning of the movie, who the two characters are, and why they are going to intersect here now, given as the movie goes on, Let's talk about the two leads and basically their intentions and what it is their, I wouldn't say goals, but like what is the point of their existence and what, like what is it they, how how are they parallel from one one another is kind of the important thing. Because when it comes to Kim, uh, I feel that it's probably a bit of a stretch, but like I feel like he represents the coming of a new era of a more sensitive maybe stoic man but is someone who's more in touch with their emotions and is maybe ashamed of it but it's there and i feel like zhang is the opposite where it's almost like he's of the old guards and he's Mm -hmm. stubborn and he's been through so much in life now again taking away from what he's doing as a human being is fucking disgusting but just looking at it from a metaphorical level in terms of like their personalities and why they hide certain things and why the other one doesn't Mm. is that I feel like they're a play off each other. And it's tr- it's basically out with the old guard, in with the new. Because I feel like the overlying theme, besides revenge, which I'm sure we'll get into later, is the fact that how we perceive violence based on how it's being performed. Mm. Because Kim does just as many horrifying things to people in the movie. Because he doesn't just... I mean, obviously he's going out and he has like a goal and intention in terms of why he's doing this. But it's not. It doesn't hold back from the way he does it. He doesn't just like stab, like you know, stab someone, put him out of their misery. Like, he tortures these people throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and you don't even know he's capable of that until he starts to do it and look for his suspects who killed his fiance. Mm-hmm. And while Jang, on the other end, is doing just as terrible things, but obviously there's a completely different motive as to why he's doing this. Mm-hmm. So I think it's playing with our heads. Where obviously we're going to be on Kim's side, obviously because we know what the fucking overall encompassing logic of what's happening here is, but. It's clearly playing with that we're cheering for Kim while he does this horrible act, 
and we're disgusted with Jang while mm. he's doing this horrible act. And I think that's a, I wouldn't say the core theme here, but it's it's clearly something the director's playing with. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think that you know, as we'll say, as we'll talk about, like I said, more in a moment with Kim, he's clearly motivated by revenge. I mean, he is somebody that from the outset, you know, he wants to inflict pain on uh, the person that killed his fiance uh, because he feels like that's the justified thing to do. And I think that that is something that does run to the core of a lot of human beings in general. I think that throughout our history as human beings, I mean, we only feel as though uh, justice has been done unless people suffer on some level. If they, if they do... Uh, experience some kind of form of punishment. Uh, so like you said, that's the reason why when we see the the pain that's done against other suspects of the murder, but before we before Kim discovers that Jang is the one that did it, he kind of goes through at least, I think, two other suspects. He goes in and tortures them and beats exactly. them. Exactly. And at one point, there's a horrible scene where he takes a wrench and beats it off the guy's nuts. And where, But I think that's, <sighs> as viewers, we're in that moment... Even though that guy who gets his nuts beaten in isn't the one who's guilty of that crime, we do know that he's probably done similar crimes. Yeah, because I think so that's what it is. I think they're like the he like slaps four fucking names on the wall somewhere. Right. And clearly, they're all you're right, like suspects, the usual suspects type of deal. Yeah, so it's just, exactly, and you know they have done similar crimes in the past. That's why they be the usual suspects. So him getting his nuts beaten becomes this source of comedy. In the mo in that moment, I didn't feel a particular sense of empathy towards no. him because I, I I have to be honest, I felt like oh you know he is awful to say, but maybe he d deserves yeah. that on some level. And that's it, right? That's that's the morals they're playing with, right? They're kind of like testing our abilities to and our ethics in terms of like what we know the the person who performing the violence intentions are. So it's like because if you strip that away and you just saw this guy doing this to someone, we would be disgusted no matter what's happening. But mm -hmm. because we're tied in and understand why it's happening we're like like i said we're cheering rather than saying you know holy fuck this guy's yeah. a maniac because he is like, at the end of the day what well i don't want to jump ahead but kim gets to the point where it's you know is he much different than jang i guess is kind of the notion is he much different and will getting revenge give you the kind of closure that maybe that you're looking for you know like that's a big question you know does revenge seeking revenge actually create more problems and isolate you more than exactly than um, than you want anyway that, that, again that's jumping ahead a little bit because i think one of the the i wouldn't say i one of the big things i got from this especially from the first act is basically the message and theme is that uh people who live too much in their careers can forget and like kind of offset their personal lives and can lose what they actually love in life by pouring too much into their, you know, day-to-day -day work lives. And I think that's what they're trying to say is that he feels like he wasn't there for her when he could have been. He was probably working too much type of deal. And at the end of this, the irony is that the only way for him to get the justice he feels is deserved is to jump in and obsess more than ever over his job. When, again, the irony is that he's taking leave from it. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of playing with that notion. And the well is the fact that, you know, is the payoff there? Like, is it all worth it? You know, because as we come to find out, as they do a little more investigating and he ends up running through the suspects, he gets to uh, Zhang's lair and he finds that the wedding ring that he lost in the grate. So immediately from then, I was surprised how early he found the ring because I thought the way the movie was going to play out more 
was probably the third act turn would be him discovering where Zhang is too, mm. or who he is, and is definitively knows that it's him. So I was surprised, almost at the end of the first act, that he knows this is the guy that I've got to go with pinpoint. So I was like, okay, the rest of this movie now, there's no real suspense in terms of figuring who this is. So it's more of like, what's he going to do now, knowing that? Yes. And that's the surprise and how this movie kind of plays out the rest of the time is not what I expected from going into it. I thought it was going to be a whole lot of like finding who Zhang is. That's exactly right. No, it, uh, and from there, for the rest of the movie, is just this series, essentially, of catch and releases yep. with uh, Kim toward Zhang. And, it, and as we'll see, you know, Kim becomes involved in this very sadistic game in which he wants to prolong the pain and punishment against Zhang as long as possible. So, you know, I mean, he has Zhang in his grips. I don't even know how many times he has yeah. the opportunity to kill him. Because what it is is he, too, I think, uh, he, he ends up finding him uh, with a girl that he saves last minute and basically just beats the shit out of him. Like, yes. that's, that's the shocking part, too, okay, that I'll get into as well with all mm. their interactions, is that it's never this 50-50 thing, and that's kind of why I alluded to earlier that the character of Zhang possibly, you know, is past his prime and has already been through this with, like, maybe other people and stuff. It's the fact that he is always overwhelmed by Kim. Like, he always loses the fight. He always, Kim's always a step ahead of him, mm. and not even just in terms of, like, where he's to, but also in terms of the battles themselves. He can never get a leg up on him. So whenever he, Kim just fucking busts in the room, he's like, oh, God damn it, you again, man? Like, what are you doing? You're fucking up my stuff. Exactly. And, uh, like, so what he does is when he, he had, like, literally at this point, almost halfway through the movie, he had him where he could kill him. It, mm -hmm. it would have been over, would have been the end of the movie, and that's the whole point. But he ends up getting this tracking device that he plants in Kim's, he make, he like forces him to swallow it or something. Mm -hmm. And it allows him to have a GPS on him for the remainder of the movie and also hear what he's saying. So that's how, once he gets him out of this situation, he releases Zhang into the world again and is going to basically track this guy and keep him on his toes for the re as long as he can until he drives him insane. Exactly. You know, so that's the proceeding, that's, that's the basically the remainder of the movie and how it all plays out. And it's just like John was saying, it's a big game of catch and release at that point. Yeah. But what I find really, uh, to go back to your characterization of Zhang, especially the first couple of times that Kim finds Zhang, beats the shit out of him, and then releases them, what I find really messed up is how Zhang chooses to spend his time. Uh, sort of consistently spends time hurting other people. There's that scene when he goes into the doctor's office. And, you know, you would think that... So this is, just to back up, I think this is after the, the first time he's released. As, as Scott mentioned, you know, Kim kind of intercepts this... Call it what it is, this rape that Zhang was doing of this young girl. Uh, Kim plants the, the tracking device... Zhang goes off into the world, and then Zhang has to get some medical treatment. Goes into a doctor's office, and he immediately becomes like very confrontational. He's insulting the doctor, who's this elderly man. He wants to take his glasses off, and he threatens him. And then immediately after that, uh, Zhang starts uh, sort of harassing the secretary that's there, corners her in this back room, is a, orders her to strip, 
is about to rape her when again Kim comes in. Fucking kicks the door in. Kicks right. the door in at the right time, which is so satisfying time it and is. time again. It every is. time you see Kim sort of come in and save the day. But in any case, it's just it, it blew my mind how indiscreet Jang is. He's not going undercover. No, he's unaware at this point that he has the tracking device on him. Yeah. Uh, so you know he's. And that kind of adds to the humor element of what I was saying. Because like, yeah. cause when Kim busts in, it's always like he waits for him to kind of get to the point where he wants to have his, uh, like he basically where he wants his victim. And then he's like, I'm going to swoop in now and ruin it for him. Rip it away from right. him and I'm going to beat the shit out of him and basically punish him for this. Right. That's kind of where the weird humor comes in. Because as fucked up as the stuff that's going on at that moment, you could just see Zhang's face. It's like, God damn it, no. Why, how do you keep getting here? Like, he's just so, he has no idea how he's finding him. And, like, yeah. there is a tiny smidge of dark humor there. And, like, I don't know. It's like you said, it adds to the, the joy of getting his, of him getting the shit beat out of him. Absolutely. But I mean, how twisted of a person are you that in the midst of almost dying and at a time when you know somebody's on your, your tail, you're still spending your free time hurting other people, yes. possibly raping them and that kind of thing. So it just speaks to how much of a monster this guy really is. You know, it's not just, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into the motivations as to why he's capturing, killing young women now in a moment, because as we find out later in the movie, yeah. there's this whole other reason for it. But He's also doing it clearly just for his own enjoyment, exactly. his own fun and purposes and that kind of thing, which really adds to the fact of how much of a monster this guy is. And, and that's what's so risky about, and that's kind of what I was going to mention, and that, this is why his character just kind of like is so polarizing to me. It's so risky for a writer or even a director to give so much screen time to, uh, I wouldn't say charismatic, but just like a character like that because at the end of the day, if you're going to give someone that much screen time, whether it's fucking Hannibal Lecter or anyone with a bit of charisma, you're always at the risk of the, the audience, I wouldn't say taking their side, but there's always that sliver of like anti-hero kind mm. of, cause, because they're getting that attention. Championing that him, identifying with them, that sort of thing. And, and yeah. I find it's such a rare instance where they do that, but for not one second, and I was interested in him, and I couldn't help but just be curious what the fuck he's thinking or going to do next, but I never for one second felt sympathy for him. And that is owed to A, the writing, and B, the performance, which I thought was brilliant. Like, mm. I, the only other character, honestly, I think you're going to agree with this, the only other character I can think in a movie like this, defined like this, and given this level of, you know, psychoticness, and just given the amount of screen time for you to understand the nuances is, would be Antoine Sugar from No Country for Old Men. Absolutely. And yeah, I find absolutely. they're similar in terms of the attention they get and how they drive the movie forward, but neither time am I... I'm fascinated with them, but I'm never sympathetic for them. Mm. And kind of a little less than Sugar from No Country for Old Men, they both have this weird, like moral compass that only they understand and they abide by and they follow and we're plopped into instances where they're exercising it but whether we agree with it or not we're shown that it's there and that that's the one thing they're guided by like Shiger with flipping the coin basically like him deciding that right. fate will determine if I do this or not exactly. and like he as crazy and you know emotionless as he was 
is that he could never turn against the fact that fate decided otherwise. You know, that's mm. why he always made the you know victims call it because it's your choice to call this. This is your fate. So what would me. be the, what would what would be the moral code in your view with Zhang in this case? <laughs> Zhang, it, he I feel like more. It's not the same le- level of nuance, or I wouldn't say sympathy or anything like that. But he has I feel like what's God complex, where it's just like you're saying. I think it's depicted the most in a scene where he brings in the poor nurse into the room where he to get to make himself feel better as a human being to exist or feel anything he has to tear someone else down emotionally Mm. and make them feel like shit and make them almost humiliated in front of him to have that alpha-ness about them that's why he was you know you had the doctor he's this educated you know aged man who's been around the block and is you know can you imagine how educated he is he's there insulting him in the office because basically he said that you know he was giving him direction. You gotta go get out of my office. And he's just like, you know what? Fuck you, man. What are you talking about? And he's like, you said he reaches for his glasses and starts to try to humiliate him, mm-hmm. but the nurse walks in and interrupts it. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna turn my attention to her. So it's like I think he. It's almost like a drug that he needs to make himself feel better because he has nothing to offer the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and you see, it's that- a bit much. Now I don't. I know it's probably a bit of a stretch, but that's kind of like that's the nuances I've got of his character especially with how much screen time he gets which is shocking right yeah absolutely absolutely and you do see time and time again anytime anybody uh, disrespects him in the slightest way his immediate instinct is just to challenge them you exactly know? exactly no matter what he's always looking for conflict mm-hmm. right like he's never at ease and the one thing I don't want to understate here as well as we're, we kind of glossed over it a bit is just uh, if you haven't seen this movie, the violence, the, the like, yeah, I, I say this because, you know, like, I, but we're glossing over it almost like it's a Friday the 13th movie. Like, yeah. it is very visceral and primal and real. It's hard to explain. It's aggressive. It's very, very, very off-putting violence is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, it, it's like, like we said before, it's a lot of hand-to-hand combat. It's a lot of stabbing. It's a lot of beating people with blunt yeah. objects there's a lot of blood it's not flashy no. do you know what i mean like it's uh it, it doesn't the camera doesn't look away and quite often i mean there's lots of scenes of, of like people that are almost unconscious being beaten yes and their yes. bodies are just still limp right and, and they're just... being beaten over and over again and blood coming off of them and it, 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 it doesn't turn away and like you said it doesn't seem overly stylized no. the use of violence and and it's kind of it's, it sounds really weird it's like that's uh, what I appreciate about this movie is because if this movie didn't have the core and soul of what we're what we've been delving in here now for this whole time, without only bringing this up now, it would rely on that exploitativeness to sell the movie. Mm. You know what I mean? But I feel like the material and the performances and what the movie's trying to say exceeds this. But that is a selling point in it as well to make it even to emphasize the point even more. Like it's not re- it's not reliant on this violence to make it special is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. While you have movies like torture porn, like Saw, and you got fucking Hostel and stuff, where that's the selling point is you're going in for that violence. And hey, if there's a plot along with it, we're in for the ride. But mm-hmm. this movie doesn't use that, but it's there to make it to put it on the next level, I guess, in terms of just making you uneasy. It, it's necessary mm-hmm. for. Uh, the message is trying to send and just shove down your throat, I guess. Right. It's, so that's one thing I just didn't really want to gloss over because one scene that really stood out to me was just just from just a standpoint of filmmaking was the revolving scene in the car. Remember after yeah. one time, the one time we let him go, kind of like John was saying, is that 
uh, as he catches and releases Zhang, it never stays in one place. He wakes up somewhere new, and then he just kind of floats into a new set piece or a new environment. And we always stumble upon these fucking weird people that just like other awful little sub scumbags that have nothing to do with anything. But it's just showing you the world is broader and more gross than just what's going on here. And so what happens is he gets picked up by these cab, uh, this cab guy and someone in the back. And clearly, like, they have a little shtick going where they rob people. And yeah. they probably murder them as well, like, mm-hmm. as they pick them up in the middle of the night. And they don't realize who they just picked up was one of the biggest fucking psychopaths ever. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets the leg up on him. So basically what happens is that the cab he's driving and Jang hauls out a knife. And the camera does a 360 revolving around the car of like five times as it shows this single shot knife fight scene knife I guess you fight call between it? the like, guy in the back and, and Zhang and Zhang is stabbing the driver and the car is just going in different directions going off the road and it's just melee happening inside the car blood squirting out of necks out of bodies and it's just it, it, visually it's it, it's a stunning scene to watch and <laughs> extremely violent oh my god and then the other scene in terms of violence was like the achilles heel oh scene my god. oh yeah. my god because what i guess what kim the lead detective's goal is in this catch and release in terms of like his satisfaction in terms of what he wants to get out of here it's not just to beat up jang but what he wants to do is he wants to gradually break him down physically and debilitate him every time he does this so every time they have another interaction you look at jang and he's got like fucking broken leg or then maybe the next time he's got like a his wrist snapped or something but in this in one of the scenes he just brutally cuts his achilles heel and again the camera doesn't look away it just stays focused on his heel the entire time and his reaction afterwards is so visceral the pain i can't even imagine because again it's (laughs) because it's so you're shown so much of what he's capable of and what he's done to other people. So then when you see him experiencing this pain and reacting like any normal human being should, it's so, like, it just throws you off and, and it takes mm-hmm. away his mystique almost. Yes. And that's, and again, that's what Kim's looking for. That's what he wants. He wants to see him squeal and stuff, right? So that's kind of the running weird humor, I'd almost say, as it goes from catch and release, catch and release, is that every time you see him, he's more and more broken down. And then by the end of the movie... He's just this fucking mess of a human being, Jay. Yes. <laughs> what he's gone through. Yes. So I guess let's jump into, in my opinion, the next most important uh, set piece, which would be when Zhang is released again by Kim, but he goes to his old militian brother, where we kind of like what you were saying, John. I don't know if you wanted to kind of allude to this a little more, where we kind of get a bigger picture in terms of why he's been doing this and probably how long he's been doing this yeah sure so when uh, when Zhang shows up here we're, we're we see this uh, outdoor area where there are these dogs that are all caged up there's this bucket there clearly filled with some form of meat it's bloody and this kind of thing and the, the owner of the dogs is kind of tossing the meat to them we quickly realize when Zhang shows up that this guy is in fact a cannibal that he that Zhang has been supplying the bodies of young girls to this guy assuming they're selling them to this guy we can only assume and there's this really twisted scene uh after the scene with the dogs where they go away and they're sat at a dinner table and jang who's going there i guess in order to like find a bit of a safe haven to eat and that kind of thing he's scarfing down food but the guy next to him is eating this raw human human flesh flesh. and and again like i think that's a tongue-in-cheek note there as well where it's like clearly from all the acts that jang's been doing uh just to note further that it's always young women 
is who he seems to be going for. And a clear underlying message is, again, the obje- like the objectification of women, again, kind of a through line similar to 28 Days Later yeah. and The Witch is There Again. But, I mean, you're literally to the point of women objectification where you're actually consuming mm-hmm. them is what I got from that. Because yeah. that's what he – because his fridge isn't full of, like, men and stuff. It's always – it's clearly young women is what they're uh, harvesting here. So, I mean, that's clearly what that must be saying is that there's some – to the next level. That they're literally consuming these women in terms of, like, how they view them, which is disgusting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if there's body parts, there's also women that are – alive that, that are kept there you know they're they're held hostage so that brings us then to i guess the next time that kim shows up and barges in and again it's another you know moment where you know you have a young girl is about to be murdered in this case not by zhang himself but it's the the cannibal guy the guy who owns the house he's about to uh kill this girl kim comes in inter- intercepts uh the murder and then there is this moment that, again, I think to talk about your moments of black comedy uh, happens during the sequence. So Kim basically beats the crap out of the cannibal guy, takes a knife, horribly violent, but th- but drives it through this guy's hand and pins his hand with the knife to the table, and he's sort of stuck there type <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, he right? just like leaves him. <laughs> and then at one point he's left there and he's isolated, so Kim goes off, I believe, to find Zhang, and the girl is able to get off and kind of escape. But this cannibal guy is trying to get the knife out of the table, but he's only able to pull the handle off the knife. The handle pops off, so this blade is still sticking up through his hand, and he's just like, oh my god! God damn it! Yeah, but in any case, from there, um, I don't know if you want to talk more about that scene uh, in the in the lair or, well, or in the cannibal guy's house. Or... Yeah, the, I guess the only important thing, because I, I don't, we don't need to kind of address every single kind of interaction scene. between yeah, them, because sure. I mean... It, I don't. It's it's primarily action based, and mm. for anyone who's seen the movie is listening now can understand kind of what we're getting into. But the important thing to know when they do this catch and release is it sets a new. It's a new set piece, which is very important. But it also like trajectory for where the plot's going to go after the fact. And this one's the most important because again, Kim comes in, stops Shang, beats the shit out of this cannibal guy, basically just. Uh, opens the doors of what this operation is here then for the police to come in and kind of take over. Right. But another important factor to note is that what you were saying earlier, this is where the first gun makes an appearance. Mm. And all it is is some, like, you know, old raggedy shotgun off the wall. And, you know, it's the only way Zhang can come close to being on the same level as Kim is by bringing this gun into the mix. It's the only time where he's, like, on that physical level of competing with him. Yeah. And... That allows, you know, Kim to uh, take... So what he does is, like, you know, he basically cleans house, knocks them all out, gets Jang out again, kidnaps him, does the same kind of thing, and dumps him somewhere else. Um, but what it is is that, I believe, doesn't he bring them to a hospital at this point? And I think the guy mm-hmm. Kim is working with, he's also an agent, is helping him, you know, kind of beat around the legality of what he's doing here. Because exactly. obviously his who he's working for has no idea what he's doing. Yep, but they exactly. know how his emotions are. And they kind of suspect it, mm-hmm. but they don't uh, They don't get in his way is the best way for me to say it. It's like yep. you can tell the chief knows what he's doing and he's kind of saying, like, okay, you've had enough. Stop doing this or it's gonna this revenge will lead to something that you don't want. And then it leads to the point of what you're saying again, which we'll jump into now in a sec, is that y- your selfishness and greed around the idea of revenge will eventually catch up to you. Mm. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure where, at what point this happens, but there's this really, um, in high, at, the, at the end of the movie, looking back, there's this moving scene where uh, the fiance, what was the fiance's names, uh, what was her character's name? I keep referring to her as the fiance. No, I'm not sure, because that's the thing, she was only in for the first like few minutes, right? Yeah. In any case, uh, Kim is speaking to her father and her sister, and there's this prolonged conversation where the father and the sister are basically saying, uh, like, we know what's going on, but, you know, you need to stop. You know, yeah. pursuing him, possibly kill, killing Zhang is not going to bring her back. It's not going to make your pain um, any any worse or, or any, uh, it's not going to lessen your pain in any kind of way. Um, but it seems like at this point, Kim is a bit of a person that's on a mission. Yeah. Uh, and nobody is really able to get in his way. Because I mean, there are voices that are kind of discouraging him from doing so. Yeah. Uh, but it seems as though he's a bit of a freight train at this point. He Cause, has cause a mission. Because that's the thing. Is I think he reaches this point here now in the movie where he takes him again is that he doesn't even know. I don't think he knows where his finish point is. I don't think mm. he understands that. Like, what is where is the end goal here of me doing this? Like, I don't think he has a game plan to understand what's the final period here. Where's the exclamation point for me to get my revenge? He just constantly wants to release him. And just let him live through this pain yeah. is what he wants. And to connect with this idea that you're talking about, he's not thinking about what the end point is, but also I get the sense he's sort of on automatic pilot here, and he's not really thinking about what the uh, collateral damage could be yes. through his behavior here. So so this gets into what ends up paying out, unfortunately, for Kim. Yeah, exactly right. So essentially, uh, in the, just go back to the scene where Zhang and Kim were both in the hospital, Zhang overhears Kim talking to his partner about how there's this tracking device inside of Zhang. Zhang is awake, kind of hears the conversation going on, but he's pretending to be asleep. Zhang gets out of the hospital, uh, takes the tracking device out, and then, uh, but there's this then really intense his... scene where Kim is able to hear, it's clear that Kim is able to still hear Zhang, actually no, he has the tracking device still on yeah. him, Zhang does, but he's just aware that it's on him. And then Zhang is kind of communicating with Kim through mm -hmm. this tracking device, even though Kim is very far away. Exactly. And, and then he basically lets him know that, like, I know what you've been doing this whole time. I'm going to hurt you. You shouldn't be as far away as you are. I know you're not close. Because, like, he was kind of paying attention to the setting around him. So he misleads him into following him to some, like, corner store where he takes X-Lax or something, gets it out of his system. So then by the time he runs out of there, steals a cab, takes off, Kim's pulling up. Mm -hmm. And he realizes that he's lost. And again, here come you couldn't have a more idea of just like you're you're getting too greedy, flying too close to the sun, and this is what you get. Now you've lost him. Exactly. And what's what's Jang gonna do? He's gonna he found out who he is, so he's gonna go and take care, make basically make his life as worse as he can by killing his uh, his fiance's father and sister. Yeah, because in his mind, he's evening the score because there's been so much that's been pain inflicted against him. Well, I need to get back at Kim now, which is, you know, you could say very twisted because obviously he killed the fiance of Kim. But in any case, Zhang goes to um, to the home of Kim's fiance. Sa again, another horribly violent interaction yeah. there where he sort of savagely beats uh, the fiance's father. father. Um and then the sister comes in. We don't actually know. I think we what see happens, that's the one. Like, that's the one time we don't see the violence. It's kind of a jump scare where she kind of comes in at the wrong time. Yeah. And there's a misdirection of where he's to, and he comes up behind her. But I believe we see her in a 
bag or something later when the cops show up, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know if she's still alive, but I, I remember seeing her on the floor. But that's the one they didn't show what happens. So the plan then for Jang is, is that, fuck this. I'm not even going to leave myself out in the open here anymore. I'm going to... The best way to get revenge is to use his own system against him and is to murder these people that he probably the only ones he has left that he loves and cares about. And I'm going to turn myself into the prison system right. and just rot in jail rather than let him exactly. dictate my fate. So that's Jang's plan. So what he does is he drives up, pulls up and calls himself in. He pulls up in front of the precinct and then we got this awesome scene where Kim pulls up, rips the door, door off, off. Holy yeah. shit. And just, drives by and grabs him and at that point jang looks like the most broken down human being i've ever seen he's there like in like slippers and his boxers in a robe when he walks when he steps out of the car you see the, the blood dripping down <laughs> and his he's legs. got like he looks like shit got his yeah. kitchen knife with like a smoke hanging out like oh man like what a will <laughs> and then you see you have these pedestrians these unknowing people walking by like, in the what street like, looking at here? this maniac and, and we know why he looks like this yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, again it's just a a little subtle comedy jab right in the in the right in the sweet spot. Yeah. So then this leads to the final uh, interaction of the whole movie. So Kim gets a hold of Zhang, takes him away from the precinct, and brings him then to his very own lair, which he discovered earlier. Um, he sedates him. Uh, he puts him in this guillotine that Zhang has set up for his victims, and tr basically what he wants to do is he wants to get him to be afraid yeah exactly. he, he wants he kim wants jang to feel like how his victims felt that's what his end goal here and maybe feel some level of guilt as yes. well i would say feel pain but also feel some level of remorse yeah and they have a little back and forth in terms of you know talking about high level stuff in terms of like beliefs and fate and all this jazz and we're kind he puts on a facade jang does after Kim smacks him around a bit, I believe. He puts just, a knife through, his, a knife through his cheek or cheek something. Is, Jesus yeah. Christ. And we almost think that he's broken him. Right. But then Zhang immediately flips the switch and is like, you're fucking silly. Just get this over with. You got nothing on me. You're not going to, I'm not going to give you yeah. the satisfaction of what you want here. This is not I, I can't experience fear. I can't experience pain. Uh, he's saying that this this pursuit of what you're doing here is, is, is pointless. Exactly. So at that point in time, he's like, Kim is just knows that he, he won't get the level or confession or, you know, uh, begging that he wants mm. to kind of satisfy his need. So he again sets up a situation here that Jang didn't see coming where it's like a device. I think it's like, there's a rope holding the guillotine that's wrapped around the door that Zhang leaves, and it's held by Zhang's mouth. So basically, if Zhang opens his mouth, he'll release the rope and the guillotine will fall down. Or vice versa, if someone opens the door, it will rip it out of his mouth and the guillotine will chop down. So he leaves him in this situation just saying, like, you're going to dictate your own death here, which is almost ironic because it's just, we think, it, another layer is added in a sec. But we think at this point, it's like, that's kind of shitty because it's like, you're let, you're giving him his out is how I viewed it. And it's like, I don't think that's a proper level of revenge. Like you're letting him dictate how he wants to die. So I wasn't really satisfied with him putting him in the situation, walking away. It's cause, so then we start seeing Kim walking down the road from the lair, but then pulling up behind Zhang, we see characters that we met earlier on in the movie in just a quick three minute scene, which were Zhang's parents and I believe his son. son. Yep. So... What we think is a situation where he set him up 
to just, you know, end his own life and dictate his own fate. What it is is that we do see there's a some there is a core to him somewhere because his family have been given this note by Kim that he's here and they come knocking on the door and immediately we see the emotion pour out mm. of Jang and we see what Kim wanted to get out of him emotionally, but Kim doesn't get to experience it. So I guess it's kind of the... So anyways, I'm sorry. The, the family knocks on the door, and anyways, he starts screaming, saying, don't open the door, don't yeah, open yeah. the door, and through all this commotion, drops the rope, gets his head chopped off, the door opens, and his family see his lair, essentially, where he's been committing all these crimes, and who he actually is as a human being, and his mm. decapitated head. So it's the worst possible... It's the only possible situation he could put him in that's yeah. similar to himself. I never thought of that, actually. That's a really good point, because I was just thinking, like, oh, my God, they're just horrified by the son's uh, head rolling towards them. You're right. They're, at that same moment, it's revealing his background. Yeah. They have a simultaneous... Because it's just a disgusting lair. Like, it looks yeah. like a stereotypical, like... A, torture a monster, chamber. Torture yeah. chamber, exactly. Yeah. So then, yeah, it's like the irony comes down to the fact of, you know... Obviously, the theme is that you see Kim walking on the road, and then there's this long kind of scene where he breaks down crying. It's like hysterical crying. It's like laughter, crying. It's silent. We don't hear it. And yeah. obviously, we're left with the question, is that who won here? Did he get his revenge? Was the revenge worth it? Is that what he wanted? So it's kind of that, yeah. I wouldn't say, it's kind of a nihilistic ending. I think so. I think I think one of the key shots at that ending there is when he's, like I said, he's crying, but there's this... There's a shot of him kind of walking down the road, but he's clearly isolated and on yeah. his own. Right? And there's nobody else around, exactly. I think we're meant to kind of judge Kim in that moment. Me honestly. too. I think we're we're sort of meant to say, meant to think, okay, if you seek revenge and if you seek, you know, to inflict pain on others, good chance you're going to end up creating more problems and actually making yourself more alone. Exactly. Because I mean, there's, I mean, the people that he should have been with after the death of his fiance, you know, should have been. His fiance's father, exactly. Fiance's sister, uh, but what did he do? He actually put them in more jeopardy through his own actions. Exactly. So now he's isolated. He's on his own, and I mean, he breaks down crying. I mean, I guess there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, maybe he does feel this sense of guilt, recognizing that he is alone, that he created the situation. But also, I mean, he really didn't grieve at any point in this no. movie. I mean, after very stoic. The entire but, time, and I get, and I'm not not uh, bashing the actor, but that's what the character was definitely asked to be. Yeah, like you, he needed to be this empty shell of a human being. Yeah. Like you were, he always had a front up, and that's again, that's why they had that tiny scene in the beginning to show. Oh, by the way, he's not a robot. Like he does have emotions and stuff, yeah. right? Because the entire runtime until that last credit. That's the only time you see some emotion, really, from exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah, he has the capacity for emotion. We exactly. see that, like I said, at the beginning and at the end, but pretty much the entire movie, he's forced to flick this switch where he turns those emotions off so exactly. that he can be effective at achieving his goals. Yeah, and, and I think it, it sounds very basic and stuff, and, I'm, and there's a number of different kind of messages to get from the end here, but I think the over-encompassing theme that I'm sure the writer and director wanted to get across was the fact that Revenge is a sel at the end of the day a selfish act. It is. It, it's it's yeah. it's justice in a sense, but it's only going to give that justice to the person going give putting putting forth that revenge is what I'm trying to say. So that's why vigilantism and stuff is obviously looked down on by most people, and that 
true justice is the grand scheme of things and should be properly put through the societal system rather than you taking it a hold of it by yourself because the grander good isn't getting the benefit of the revenge you are getting the benefit here like obviously the fucking family's not getting because they just got murdered from you being that selfish right mm -hmm. so even the payoff of you finally getting what you wanted in the end who else is there to even understand or appreciate that that's a thing yeah. besides you the individual who clearly at the end he didn't get that payoff because now he's like what do i do now like, he didn't get the yeah he didn't get that payoff because Zhang wouldn't give it to him. He exactly. wouldn't give him what he was truly looking for. And like we said, I mean, like really, you can make the argument that what the director is saying is in these situations, you know, God forbid you experience a situation like this, but the best use of your powers is to try to comfort those around you, is yep. to try to do the most good that you can, uh, and then you know hope that justice is served. And he, and us for remember, I mean, he works in law enforcement. Exactly, he could have went through the proper channels to try to this guy down in an ethical way and that's that's and that's clearly like a really interesting point they wanted to kind of sink in there is the fact that he is of law enforcement you know what yeah. i mean like it's like this is he's completely going against what his livelihood is right to get what he feels is justice and it just shows you how from what is perceived as the purest and best intentioned human being which is like a secret service agent young and just like that ready to take on his life at this point mm. can be turned and completely flipped against a moral compass to get what he feels is right yeah, and i mean exactly. even even the best person can be turned this and it kind of comes in line too with the 28 days later theme that we discussed last time the fact of what we as human beings are capable of mm. when we're put in dire straits and backed in a corner you know yeah, what i mean completely. so okay without stretching it out too long i, I think we pretty much covered everything there that i can kind of imagine with this you know excessive movie i would kind of call it yeah. it was an exhausting experience in a good way it it just i was so engrossed in it and mm. i i really it, it had me from the get-go it was a very uh encompassing movie in terms of like taking me and just bringing me into this world i didn't expect it to mm. kind of thing yeah, one thing I, I when I when the movie was over, I mean, you would probably have a better uh, explanation for this than I would, but I did find myself thinking like, okay, like, what about this places this in the horror genre? I think that the use of suspense does yeah. that. But what what I found just looking back on the movie as a whole that I thought was cool was the ways in which, um, you know, the way in which Kim or was Zhang, I say in particular went from being the one who was pursuing to the one who was pursued. Exactly. So often we feel the sense of suspense, both in terms of yep. what he's going to do, but also we can't help but feel the sense of suspense because, oh God, Kim's here again. Is, exactly. Is going to... And it, isn't that fascinating though? Because yeah. like that's kind of what I was, tr that's the point I was trying to make earlier, but I don't think I could articulate it very well, is yeah, it's like because the ring was found so early on and you, like, you knew who he was looking for, that sense of suspense was taken away. So you knew where he was going. And then throughout the majority of the runtime exactly like the power was taken out of the killer's hands but they were so well able to keep that level of suspense still there mm -hmm. like it's such a risky move to take because if you go that route and you take that mechanic in terms of how the rest of the movie's going to play out you're right are you killing the suspense it like what is even horrifying anymore if you know that kim can kick his ass at any point he wants to get a hold of him but they do such a good job especially with the turn we talked about earlier where Basically, Jang took a hold of the situation, got rid of the tracking device. But, yeah. I mean, you're right. They kept that level of tenseness throughout, which you need in these movies. And to me, with any good crime horror movie, uh, you need that. It's, it's all built around suspense. But it's all a matter of the way you economically pay it out throughout. And exactly. like whether the ending of it is worth it all is kind of what it comes down to. 
Absolutely, absolutely. No, and, and I think it uh, did that well. I think it incrementally, like you said, doled out uh, little payoffs in terms of the suspense to the point where that last scene with Kim and Jang, it just felt like such a, a release, I feel like, for everyone. Yeah. The, the characters included, I think, Kim in particular. And just the audience. It was just one of those things where it's like, we were waiting for that scene to happen. Like, where, was it like, where, is, where are we going to meet here? Like, is it just going to be... I, I was almost thinking, like, they were going to throw us right off and just have... Shang get hit by a car or something. I thought that's where it might go, and that where the irony would be, and mm-hmm. that like he wouldn't get his you know his revenge he wanted and stuff. But I love the complex nature of how they decided to go the same route with fulfilling the same logic of what I just said, him not getting the revenge. Mm-hmm. But it was a much more thought out way of going about it, and I thought it was because re- that's kind of a cop out ending if he died that way that I just described, right? So I mean, it was just I don't know. It was just it really hit me from start to finish and, and i was engrossed in this from the get-go so i think that kind of uh yeah i think it kind of wraps everything up it hit all the points and things i wanted to talk about john did you want to just give your overall thoughts on this guy and we'll kind of wrap this movie up sure absolutely uh, like i said from the outset love this uh really didn't know what to expect going in but i would give this a solid nine out of ten um the only deductions probably would come from the uh at times, some of the performances I found a little bit unconvincing at times. Um, that would be you know, something that, I, I mean, I not to pick on anyone in particular, but I found the, uh, the fiancé's father. Yeah. There was a couple of moments there that I didn't find particularly convincing. But in any case, overall, I felt like good, product, good uh, performances. Again, the couple of moments of what I felt like were unintentional comedy, I would deduct there, you know? Yeah, because I'm with you, dude. It's like, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know... I, whether to give him points for it's like is he trying to do that or was that not meant to yeah. be funny right? yeah in any case that was the sense I had so but you know so minor uh, minor points taken out there but overall a great watch highly recommend it and uh, glad I watched it for sure yeah I'm just gonna just you know counter all that man like that's exactly how I feel about it this um, lived up to every bit of hype and expectations I had going into it I've heard a lot about this without anything being given away I mean basically what it was that I've been told was just that it's fantastic <laughs> everyone should give it a go if you're into anything like true crime even though it's not, it's not true crime you know what i mean like that you know crime horror genre yeah. type of deal um it really is next level i think this is like peak i think this is as good as it gets in terms of crime horror which a lot of people at times depending on their taste wouldn't find stuff like this scary it's just that certain subcategory that a lot of people, especially within the last five years, I feel like true crime has taken off, and that's become a very big thing from a literal standpoint, mm. as well as you know just a cultural with all these documentaries and stuff coming out. So Absolutely. I got a feeling a lot of people would like this. Um, I would give this a solid nine out of ten. I'm I'm probably take away a few points to kind of John's what John alluded to is that. It leans very, very heavily on the two lead characters, mm. and I feel at times there's certain characters kind of thrown into the mix here, just used as plot points to kind of further emphasize points, mo- emotional beats they're trying to make. Like, I didn't really get a whole lot, not even just from the father of the fiancé, but the sister. I yeah. felt like she was kind of shoehorned in there a little bit, mm. and they had like a couple of weird like phone calls, and you know, uh, it just kind of like didn't get a lot out of the character itself. But we were supposed to have such a big emotional beat when she was killed. So, you know, I'll, I'll give it a bit of po- take away a few points there. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie where every minute I feel like this counts. I'd recommend this to anyone who's a fan of this genre. 
Alright folks, so now we're going to jump into our second main event of the evening. Uh, it is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which came out this past year, 2020. Uh, it's written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, who's known for writing Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Adaptation, and is based on the book by Ian Reid. Uh, it stars Jesse Buckley as what's labeled as Young Woman, Lucy, Lucia, and Louisa. Uh, you have Jesse Plemons, who's Jake, Tony Collette as the mother, and David Thewlis as the father. Uh, the overall synopsis for this movie is, Full of misgivings, a young woman travels with her new boyfriend to her parents' uh, secluded farm. Upon arriving, she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him and herself. So, alright, so for our listeners, anyone who's seen this movie... <laughs> I'm just going to kind of lob this over to John and just kind of see what he wants to do in terms of outlining why he chose this movie. What is it that inspired him about it? What is it? Why, why are we talking about this, John? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say, like, I find sometimes when we read the synopsis uh, for a movie off of IMDb, like, I feel very satisfied. It's like, oh, like, that's a very good, neat summary of that movie as a whole. Reading that one, I feel like that was, like, the most unsatisfying description <laughs> of what this movie is. I just want to throw that out there. Uh and also, before we really get into it, I would say this movie, in some ways, is almost defies uh, a neat explanation and defies like sort of the neat synopsis of it. But anyway, we'll get there in a moment. Um, reasons for why I chose it. Well, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I stumbled on horror movies from this calendar year, and I was looking, looking through different movies, and I honestly forgot that this movie had even been released. I hadn't seen it as of two weeks ago. But uh, I immediately got excited about, about picking this one because I'm an enormous fan of Charlie Kaufman's work. An enormous fan of being John Mal Malkovich. As Scott mentioned, he's the screenwriter and director who wrote Being John Malkovich adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. These are three of my favorite all-time movies. were pretty formative movies for me. Uh, you know, when I saw them as a teenager, I feel like really were quite challenging and were just this amazing blend of comedy dealing with like angst and you know similar themes of sort of like uh, various kinds of male struggles his movie his movies are you know um, known to be quite, quite meta and deal with the nature of art and deal with the nature of existence in relation to art and this movie I would say in a lot of ways does connect with some of the earlier themes of his films but at the same time I feel like this is a movie I've Unlike any viewing experience that I've that I've ever had, Scott, what's your relationship with the work of Charlie Kaufman? Were you familiar with his work uh, prior to seeing this movie? I'm assuming you were, but what's what's your experience with his his kind of yeah? Stuff? Like um, I just <clears throat> I'm a big fan of the three you just kind of named, uh, and oddly enough, I've watched them at a really early age as well. So they they kind of help broaden my perspective in terms of how a film mainly him as a writer because that's more or less what he's renowned for um mm -hmm. it, it, the way he approaches standard kind of narratives but he always takes this deconstructed version of how he wants the story told which is at the end of the day when you step back and look at it from a plot standpoint it's usually very basic but he'll always go with this more existential route to get his points and themes across kind of like what john was saying is that there's always this sort of level of meta-ness about them, like obviously being John Malkovich, where he himself is the star of the movie and people are <laughs> controlling him like as puppets in his head. And even the movie adaptation is the same way, where he himself is supposed to be in the movie mm. with a fictional twin brother that he has who is actually credited 
as a writer for the Academy Award of that movie as well, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's he's always had a stigma in the zeitgeist in terms of Hollywood and what he's kind of going about. And I find the more he's kind of evolved throughout his career, especially just having a background in his approach to filmmaking and especially as a writer again, won't say, but now he's always taking the helm of directing the movies as well, is the fact that he's kind of become more of especially when I'm going to see similarities in this movie to more of a David Lynch aspect to things where there's become not just a tongue in cheek of what the point is trying to get across, but there's become more of a surrealistic nature mm-hmm. to the way he approaches the narrative. And thinking like synecdoche in New York. Yes, that's yeah. a perfect example. Right. And it's just, I feel like he always, this is going to be a major point of discussion when we get into it, but he always plays with time yes. and timelines and he's always comfortable and he doesn't hold the audience's hand in terms of guiding you through it. He allows you to put the work in and respect what he's doing and is hoping you're on the ride with him is kind of mm-hmm. how I perceive his work. So having such a background going into this movie, especially when, yeah, initially this was marketed as a horror movie. It was. Mm-hmm. like Now, I'm sure anyone who's seen this or anyone who's on it kind of interested as well, in my opinion, this is as adjacent horror as you get. Mm-hmm. There are elements of horror in this. I do see it. I see the tension throughout and this constant melancholy, dire, dark tone to it all. But I can also see the arguments against it not being a horror movie. But for the sake of what I feel like we can find things and categorize it as, I do see that it fits the mold just enough yeah. to be you know, within the, the plot points of what we're discussing here. So before we kind of get into more of what it is in terms of... <laughs> how we're going to go through this movie and discuss the different high-level messages and themes that it's trying to kind of address here. I would like to kind of just take quick reins and see if you're okay with this. Where, um, Okay, so this movie is, like I mentioned, time can kind of plot and go in different areas and stuff. So it's kind of difficult to discuss it from point A to point B. Mm. But there is a literal way to look at it. For anyone who's scenic, you can kind of understand where I'm coming from, that there is a through line here of a reality of what's happening versus what we're watching on screen for 95% of the time. So what I'd like to do before we kind of jump into things and kind of dive into like different set pieces and what's happening here and there, I think it'd be best for how about I throw at you what I think is happening here. Sure. Why don't I lay out what I think the reality of this movie is what it is we're watching, and we can kind of go back and forth in terms of whether you agree or not. But I think that will help set the table better for me and you to have a more fluent discussion of the various clear messages and set pieces throughout. It'll Mm -hmm. make it a lot easier rather than we jump around from, you know, the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. I don't want it to be like that. Because I think a clear description, like I said, plot at point A to point B... It's outside the synopsis of what we, we just read. There are things happening... To explain the movie here, that I think uh, you know, you would do a better job of setting up what the movie is rather than just talking about it from yeah. plot point to plot point. Because what I'm trying to get across here is that what's really happening in reality is not what we just read as the synopsis. What the synopsis is outlining 95% of the movie, where in my opinion is not actually happening in real life, is what I'm trying to say. So to keep it just simple here, so we can kind of get the discussion going, I believe. What we're watching here is Jake is the old janitor in real life. Jake is a lonely man who 
had intentions, had ambitions, had passions when he was younger to become an artist and thrive and extend his life past this small town he lives in. But he was burdened with the responsibility of looking after his parents who both delved in and dissolved through Alzheimer's and dementia. And because he was the only son of these parents, he had to put his passion aside and you take hold of this responsibility, which ate away his good years. And then by the time his parents actually passed away from the disease, he was left with no actual life to live, except for looking after something, being responsible for something. So at that point in life, we're looking at the point now where his parents have died, and the only thing he could take on was a job as a janitor in this school. And that's all he can put his focus and time into, because it's all he's turned his life into is this level of responsibility and like not looking after himself but looking after something else because he doesn't know what his existence is anymore and what we're actually watching in the movie the 95 percent of it is jake's subconsciousness and how his mind works and where he wanted to go what his passions were where he hides certain memories why he's self-conscious and what he wanted actually out of life, what actually happened. That sounds very broad in mm. terms of in high level and what I'm saying, but that's what I think is actually happening in the movie. And the narrative of Lucy, young Jake, and the parents are all his subconscious projections of what's actually happening mixed with what he wants out of life. And that's the world we're put into when we're almost led to believe that Jake as the old man janitor, that's some other quasi-subconscious. But in reality, it's the opposite. So if you were to put this on a, like make this black and white in a linear narrative of what I think is going on here, I think that's what's happening physically in reality. And that, if you agree somewhat with that, John, that can lead us then to more thoroughly discuss in effect, in like effect of what happens from the surrealistic nature of the rest of the movie. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's 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 really good. I, I think one hundred percent. This is things happening in janitor Jake. We'll call him janitor Jake's head. I think your description of his experience with his family and the like is all quite true. A uh, couple things I would. I'm curious. When you said it's all happening in his uh, subconscious, so in your view the experience with young Jake and Lucy, are these things that he's not even consciously aware of at all? Like, are these, like, this narrative that's playing out uh, before us, is this something that Janitor Jake is just totally oblivious to? Because my take was that this was, like, a form of a fantasy of some kind. Yeah. This might be the kind of thing that, you know, because Janitor Jake <laughs> is, uh, to me, you know, it's pretty clear that this is a completely solitary, isolated guy you know, again, he's a janitor. We get the sense that people around him kind of mock him. He, we get the sense that he's shy. Very self-conscious. Very self-conscious, nervous. So I almost thought, I thought the uh, the plot that we're witnessing is almost just a form of story that he kind of conjured is telling. Up it is conjured up uh, to keep him company and also to fulfill kind of un 
unresolved uh, desires that he's had throughout his life, which yeah. we'll get into, I'm sure. So, so I guess my question is, do you think that this is stuff that he's totally not thinking about? It's just happening on some deep level of consciousness that he's not aware of? Or does he, is he actually kind of aware on some level of, of the narrative being played out? I think, um, cert- I think the character of Jake... Yeah, because let's stick with Janitor Jake and just Jake himself. So when we say Jake, we're represented by Jesse Plyman. Is that his name? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Plemons. So that's that's just be regular Jake. So I think what's happening in terms of the narrative itself that Jake, uh, within his memory, that's him guiding his own conscience. Like that's what he's actually experiencing in his head. But what makes this so interesting is that we're lined up immediately with an unreliable narrator in Lucy or Lucia, whatever you want to call her, because she has like mm. a, she doesn't really have a set a- name. Ames at one point. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're set up with her as the again the unreliable narrator in the sense that it's misdirecting us to how this is all working. Because what I think she is is she's a conduit for us as the viewer to just aimlessly float through Jake's consciousness is what's going on. Mm. And again. W- she is a manifestation of the romance and the love that he wants in life from like a like you say kind of a film extent like we'll hit on some other mm. things that happened throughout it but like that's what he's fantasizing about and the reason that jumps out to me is why that's what she is and doesn't actually exist technically she exists so what it is is that there's a moment in the school near the end where she's kind of going on this weird monologue between him and Jan- her and Janet or Jake she basically says that I can't even tell you when I met Jake. You know what? I just remember him being some creep in a bar staring at me. And I don't remember, you know, I couldn't even tell you when that was. So I think what she is, is she's an actual person. He was just kind of ogling innocently somewhere in a bar. And, you know, she actually didn't have fucking didn't think about him for two seconds. While in his head, he's got this fantasy drawn up of this is the girl I want. And I think I can make some little like romantic gesture. And we can run away together and get married. So I think she's a real thing in reality. But he, she's a character created in his head from just someone he just randomly saw yeah. somewhere and had, his, had feelings towards. 100%. Now, this movie also raises, I think, some, some really interesting points uh, about the nature of consciousness in some ways and also the nature of ideas. So I think you're 100% right in everything you just said. I think it is true that, you know, she is just... Who we see, uh, the things she says, her uh, background and everything, uh, which shifts, by the way, throughout. I mean, the, yeah. the details of characters change all the time. But in any case, the origins is from an observation or a, a, just she's somebody that, that Jake had seen in a bar years ago. But at one point in the movie, there is this, I can't remember who said it, but there's this line talking about how ideas, creative ideas themselves, almost take on sort of a life of their own, and they sort of infect the mind, almost in the way that a virus does. Yep. So, it almost feels as though, at some times, that Lucy has this kind of form of autonomy, or individuality, in which she's kind of able to, like you said, go through Jake's consciousness, yeah. observe things, and she, like you said, she, she's almost kind of like us, it's almost like she has a little bit of detachment, she's not fully controlled by Jake's consciousness, exactly. which almost... She's just floating through, and we're, ex- and she doesn't even know what it is she is in this environment. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's constantly changing because his head and perspective is shifting throughout it, and also the disease that's eating away at him. Clearly, yeah. in reality, mm-hmm. but it's like 
so once where she's hitting these different set pieces, she doesn't understand like what it is, why it's happening, but she doesn't question the oddness of some things that are happening. Yeah. Because again, like she's something created in his head and he goes about his business consciously and real Jesse or Jake, I'm sorry, is going about doing his things. But she's kind of left then to just explore this mind that she's inhabiting. Right. And trying to understand why she's even there, why she exists, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's, I mean, it makes you wonder. I mean, Kaufman's raising some interesting ideas here about, I mean, ideas. I mean, do ideas in the brain have this weird form of... I mean, we don't really understand even what thoughts are on a certain level or what memories are, yeah. you know? They kind of have this weird kind of form of uh, existence that uh, I think Kaufman is kind of representing as, you know, as, as having their own kind of um, self-awareness and being able to kind of observe the environment around them. In any case, so that's like high-level kind of explanations as to what's happening with relation to the narrative and what we're actually seeing. Which we, as you guys can hear, is it's, it's very difficult to just put a pin in this. Yeah, like, uh, for sure. So... Yeah, it, it's healthy to talk about it in this way to just set the table so we're not just aimlessly kind of going around this because, again, if anyone's seen this, they'll understand the difficulty we're kind of having in terms of not bouncing around from uh, point A to point you know D or something and skipping yeah. B and C. So, I mean, I guess like without getting too, uh, you know, run off track here, I guess we can just kind of loosely go through, I guess, now that we understand how what they're supposed to represent and mean it'll make us easier now to kind of flow through the different set pieces which are clearly pronounced and have a reason to exist in the movie mm -hmm. like right out the go we're in technically we're in lucy's mind so we're led to believe that this is her perception of everything like that's the misdirection is the why we think that all of this is we're, you, some people may be very very confused without kind of interpreting it the way we just kind of alluded to because we think she has her own free thoughts and will. And we think she's experiencing this, but she's not. Because she's, a, again, a manifestation in Jake's head. And is experiencing this just loosely as, like you said, a kind of this like thought, this, this created being and, and interacting with what's floating around her, kind mm. of. So, I mean, it starts out the gate where they're driving in a car. And, I mean, it's a solid 20-minute drive, man. Like, they're in that car talking yeah. to Jake's parents' house. And that's kind of the big build-up here. And the fact that Jake wants to take her, they've been dating for, I believe, six weeks at the point. Yeah. And right out the gate, the conversations are very interesting and usually revolve around the idea of time, where she's even having trouble understanding how long they've been together, even though it's only been six weeks, and just kind of how passive things can be in a relationship once you've hit a certain milestone and you're serious. Mm -hmm. Everything just starts to kind of blend together, and it's like you can't remember certain little instances of when someone did the first thing here and there. Uh, she questions the idea, like, is it too early in time for me to meet his parents and stuff? So, mm -hmm. clearly that's a major theme right out the gate, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and one of the things that we find out right at the outset of the movie is that she's thinking of ending things, which, of course, is the title of our movie, but it reveal I mean, we, we... I think later on in the movie, that phrase comes to mean something entirely different, but at that moment, we think that, you know, she is breaking up with this guy. Yeah. Uh, even though she's going to meet the parents, which t to her, she says, is, is a significant next step. Um, and again, this is all things that are happening in her mind. We have access to her consciousness, her conscious uh, thoughts. Um, you know, she Even though they're going to uh, take the next step and go see the parents, she's nevertheless thinking about ending things. Uh, she says that he thinks, you know, she thinks he's a nice guy, he's a sensitive guy, and that kind of a thing. But he's never smart, which smart. is smart. Yeah, 
And then, but, however, pretty much right away, almost immediately in the movie, uh, we do have some clues that tell us that, number one, this is happening inside of old Jake's mind. Uh, the, I think maybe the first shot that we have is of Lucy getting picked up by young Jake on the street. Yep. And we have this shot of older Jake looking out through a window onto the street, and Lucy is kind of looking up and spots him overlooking her. So we right away that sort of, I think, sets up the idea that this story between Lucy and young Jake is something that is being observed on some level by older Jake, that this is a story that he is kind of o- overlooking and observing. In my view, like I said, I think this is some sort of a fantasy that he's yep. conjured And I up. think he's played this in his, throughout his mind yeah. millions of times. Exactly you know? right. And, but so, you know, so, so that is foreshadowing, that hints to actually what the nature of the narrative is right from the outset. But as soon as they're in the, the car ride, we also are... I think um, we we get we we're starting to figure out that there's something strange going on with these characters because she's thinking to herself in the car. She has these thoughts about the relationship, etc. And young Jake, it's almost like he can hear is able it. to hear her thoughts. So yeah. Ha- so not like so he kind of comments on her thoughts, and we have these moments when she's thinking, and uh, young Jake is kind of looking at her, and we, we we just sort of can tell that he is able to hear her thoughts so so we so we get the sense that right from the outset that something is something strange is going on we also find uh, there's also some hints in that early conversation as to what kind of lucy is from the outset they're talking about her background you know i think the first thing that we find out is that she's somehow involved in biology but then we find out these and then he's talking about his uh talking about poetry he's talking about william wordsworth um, and then we find out that Wordsworth himself had this uh, figure, Lucy, who was, who was held up as sort of the idealized woman. So there's a bit of a clue going on there that Lucy, Jake's Lucy... It's just like little breadcrumbs kind of sprinkled lightly, right? Yeah, exactly right. There might be some relationship there. And we do find out, or I think we find out later, that's exactly what Lucy is. Lucy is this um, idealized notion of what a woman is that Jake kind of always wanted to be with. Yeah. In any case, we also see in that car ride, I think this becomes a sort of an ongoing element of this movie, how um, elements, uh, detail, like details of the plot tend to shift and change and evolve over time. Yeah. So she initially says that, oh, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not a, a poetry person or anything like that. You know, I don't speak metaphorically. I'm a scientist. Yeah. And then suddenly she's like reciting walking, a poem. Reciting a poem <laughs> off the top of her head, right? Right. And we'll get into it later but there's another car ride scene after they reach their destination and in my opinion the tone and each character couldn't be more different in the car rides on two separate occasions when one's during the day one's during the nighttime one's during a blizzard one's during a clear day and it's like the car the initial car ride is kind of the you know the fresh kind of like early stages of a relationship where you're still getting to know someone there's still little stories you haven't told little nuances you're picking up like oh i didn't know you were interested in that kind of shtick right and like you're saying like right out the bat she just recites this poem and it's this insanely depressing melancholy poem about how you know relationships kind of break down and the idea of you kind of dread going home to be yeah, around house of bone or something it refers to you know and at the same time she's reciting this jake is passively listening mm. 
And it's kind of like, oh, that's beautiful. While not really taking in what she's trying to say to him at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they go through a number of different kind of nuances and there's little clues here and there to kind of take in in the car ride. But I think the bigger thing to get into here now is once that's done and we kind of set the stage of who these two characters are and their relationship is them reaching the farmhouse, which is his family home that he grew up in, which... We've, we haven't been given a lot of detail on at this point, no. but we're well aware just from the odd mentions of that it, he holds his parents to a certain regard, but there's this weird sense of like shame he's holding himself to whenever we either physically see them or he's getting ready to go in the house. Because mm-hmm. what he does is he pulls up in like the weirdest way. It's almost like he pulls up in the middle of nowhere when he parks. Like mm-hmm. there's no, Everything's just blank. He just pulls up into it and looks up sees the mother in the window who's like very clearly very happy to see him and immediately you think as the lucy says like are we gonna go in and say hi he's like no no i don't want to do that yet and he takes her to the barn and the barn scene i think is the the story with the pig and obviously there's other animals there that died in the it's a very kind of again another melancholy scene about death and hopelessness and basically when you're put in confinements as these animals are and have no choice in the matter what kind of existence in that is like can that be happy and stuff and i think it's trying to allude to the fact that we as human beings don't have this confinement and stuff at this time but i think this message shifts as the movie evolves so point being there's one story when they're in there that jake told lucy about how they had these two pigs in the pen at one point and that they're so confined and used to their daily life and what they were doing that they just stop moving all of a sudden. And because they stopped, you know, trying to give a shit about life, they were gradually being eaten alive by maggots where they didn't even realize it until they were actually dead and just had to be put out of the misery. So that keeping that in mind, that very weird story, that kind of comes full circle as the end of the movie comes because when the initial story's told, I believe we're supposed to interpret that as like, oh, that's not us though. We as human beings, you know, have the choice to exist outside these confines and we don't need to, you know, be put in this box and parameters and stuff. But I'll allude to a little later how I think that's very, very important in the framing of the theme around mental health and Alzheimer's and Mm -hmm. that we don't really have that choice sometimes as human beings as much as we'd like to. So without beating that to death, we'll, we'll come back. Sure. But... I think yeah, if you want to kind of address them once they initially go into the house, basically how things start to kind of take a sharp turn. Yeah, so I mean, like, I, I think um, the only way to describe the interaction with the parents, this is from the outset, is just surreal. Uh, you're, uh, one of the first thing that we see when we pull up to Jake's parents' house is his mom waving in this sort of frantic way over and over again. It's almost like she looks like she's on repeat. And just want to say the mother, uh, I think, played very convincingly by Tony Collette, who, who does a fantastic job. In any case, when we go inside the house, uh, there's just something a bit off about the parents. And about, like, <clears throat> about every little nuance of the house. I find there's just, <clears throat> like you said, immediately <clears throat> when they walk through that door, there is just this odd, surrealistic feeling like even just standing in the house like something's off like the lights were turned off clearly there was like no heat on or anything and like there's odd things in the drawers so we were already a little off in terms of the conversations and stuff they were having in the car as soon as they walk through that door that's when things take a sharp turn in terms of like you're saying the surreal surreality of it so to go back to your point scott like i think 
you know, we and Lucy are meant to be similar in the sense that I think we're getting a bit of a tour of Jake's consciousness, and at this point, we're getting a tour of Jake's home life, yep. which explains a lot of who he is, as yep. you mentioned, and kind of what he goes on to do. Uh, and I think that the reason, one of the reasons why things are a little bit off is I think something that Charlie Kaufman is trying to say about memory, and he says this throughout the movie, this is an ongoing thing that you see, you know, memory is obviously a, a, a critical theme of a lot of Kaufman's work, most notably maybe next to this movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yeah. Mind, but arguably all of them, memory is a major theme. In any case, I think he's trying to say that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ourselves that we put onto memories. There's a distorting quality to yep. memories. There's a way in which we color memories with our own ideas, etc. And, so, and yeah. I just want to jump into because you make a really good point there in terms of just how we remember things and like maybe there was an instance is what this is trying to say of where he brought a girl home at some point maybe and things just went off the rails. Mm. But it's like yeah like we what starts happening as we start going through this and meet the parents and we jump from scene to scene there it's a very awkward broken form of how this timeline starts playing out like conversations kind of start jutting into other conversations and there's no fluidity to it all mm. so immediately that starts throwing us all off track and again it's like what john's saying is that it's almost like he's loosely trying to remember and put certain conversations of what or fantasies he has together, but they just don't fit quite yeah. right. And I think that's the point he's trying to make, right? For sure. And uh, I think even um, as well, like when when we first interact with the parents, I couldn't help but notice that the mannerisms of the mother and the father almost became these like caricatures yeah. of themselves super over exaggerated right De clearly deliberate yeah i mean obviously everybody has their own mannerisms and the like but the mannerisms that the parents have were just blown out of proportion and, and then that's the case the whole uh way through during that scene at the home do you know how it kind of what it kind of reminded me of in terms of that like exaggerated expression and just kind of like trying to get that point across of, like, not so much just surreality, but just, like, clearly trying to, like, make things phony and not to what it should be. It's very similar to Get Out, where mm. they had the housekeeper and the groundskeeper who were, like, uh, I don't know if anyone's <laughs> seen Get Out. Yeah. But they they've uh, they behave in a very similar way, where it's this very over-the-top delivery. And it is, we keep using the word jarring at times, but it is. It's it's meant to just, like, completely throw you off and be like, as it does Lucy at yeah. the time, right? And I think that's kind of the same, like, uh, juxtaposition they're looking yeah. for. And I think there's uh, a couple of things going on there. I, I, I think, on the one hand, I think, as we talk about memory before, like, I, I think this has to do with the way in which we remember things. Things just kind of become distorted over time. We kind of lose the true nature of people because, you know, the people that we interact with throughout our life become internalized. And obviously, his parents, we're assuming, are, are, are dead at this point. I mean, I think that, that is pretty made clear that at least the mother is dead. Yeah. But, but in any case, um, the, the essence and nature of his parents is just kind of getting a little bit distorted, and he's just remembering these caricatured versions of them. But the other thing that we find out in the movie, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we find out that uh, Jacob is actually a, a pretty big consumer, we'll say, of media of various kinds. He's a reader, he's also somebody that watches a lot of films, watches a lot of movies, uh, watches a lot of TV, and 
I think that part of his memories of the past are themselves kind of becoming conflated with the characters that he watches in movies. This is also a guy that we see is pretty introverted, is pretty cut off from people in general. We get the sense that he's a lonely man, doesn't have much of a social life, very introverted, very nervous, etc. And I think a lot of what he understands social interactions to be and what's natural human behavior is from what he watches in the movies. Exactly. So here, what you're seeing, again, just to bring it back, when they arrive at Jake's parents' house, you're seeing this strange distortion. It's a mixture of old memories, a mixture of ideas based on movies, what parents are and based on what, you know. And even and Lucy, Lucy herself. Yeah. Lucy is, you know, like you said, probably part a, uh, a facsimile or a, you know, just a, a version of, of, of girls that he's known over time. But and also that, or, or girls that he wants want, to be with. Wants, wanted to be with, wanted to be with, but also it's taken from movies yeah. that he's watched. So, I don't know what you want to talk about from there. So, so when he well, goes into the parents' house... Yeah, the best way to kind of divert here is that I think if anyone is aware of the movie that they haven't even seen it, is that the one that kind of stands out is that dinner scene. Is that what yeah. kind, of, kind of revolves around with everyone, especially with the marketing and stuff. But once we get past that scene is where things start to kind of go deep. And that's where mm -hmm. we really just kind of let loose in terms of just your standard uh, narrative. And it becomes much more of a surrealistic, almost kind of like a David Lynchian yeah. approach to uh, filmmaking. Where essentially things just start to break down. Lucy's wearing a sweater at one point. Lucy's not wearing a sweater at another point. Her hair's done up. Her hair's not. So what they use is the dog. The family dog they have is almost a quick little clue thrown in. Where it's not really trying to say anything. But what it's trying to allude to is the fact of time shifting constantly. Because mm. at one point the dog's there... It has this, like, kind of similar to what you were saying earlier about it's like a constant motion of, like, uh, when the mother was saying hi. The same thing with the dog shaking. It's yeah. just, like, you can tell. Oh, it's almost like a glitch in yeah, his memory exactly, or something. Yeah, exactly, a glitch yeah. or, like, a weird way that he's just remembering it, right? Yeah. So in the, man in the matter of a couple of minutes, we see the dogs there, and then she's saying hi to the dog, and then there's no dog there when she pets it. Then she looks on the wall, and there's a frame of the dog that's clearly died. Yeah. So that dog is just used to show how we're currently we're hopping around time frames. Yeah. And then Lucy basically loses Jake out of nowhere and starts to explore the house herself, which again is Jake's subconscious, where yeah. she starts to understand who he is as a human being. So she goes into his childhood bedroom where she meets the father, who at this point is like in his 80s and has aged drastically. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And, um, and we see that as well i mean like, there's this jumping around of timelines that occurs and we and, and that's personified through the parents i mean at one point the father has dementia and he's talking about how he's labeling things and, and that's sure where that. th that's where this theme comes in and i'm glad that kaufman he, he he really holds his punches in terms of like going out of his way not to spoon feed the audience but he needed this scene where clearly the father was talking about mental illness and talking about alzheimer's and talking about that's why the sign was on his door saying that this is jacob's ch childhood room which is an odd thing to have at a door right <laughs> yes so it's like i think we would put the pieces together with him showing him taking care of his mother and stuff as she's walking through the house and different timelines and stuff clearly but i i needed that little nugget from the father going through the idea of dementia and alzheimer's and the fact that he's getting forgetful 
and that helps just kind of to kind of put it together to me to what's going on here because then once she leaves that conversation every room she goes in is either like a time loop or we're jumping ahead 20 years or we're back 10 right. years and sometimes it's young jake with the old mom and it's like or it's like you know a super young mom and there's no jake so it's like that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of looking at what we're doing because i feel like what the house represents is the condition and disease of alzheimer's where mm -hmm. i myself have had a nan go through dementia and can explain that what happens when someone has this disease is they constantly depending on how severe it is and how far along they are they constantly hop in and out of current time so like my nan for instance would be okay talking to us for 10 minutes and then five minutes later she might all of a sudden bring up something that happened 15 years ago and you're like no 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 like pat passed away or something do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and that's kind of what's happening with this time jump they're talking to them normal and then all of a sudden they'll shift over and bring up something that happened like 15 years back yeah. and it's showing you the disjuncted or not even just sense of reality and time but also your forgetfulness of everything and i think that's what the house is trying to show is that it's hopping like there's no organization and then sometimes they know who lucy is and then there's other times they don't know who lucy is and she's a stranger in the house to them mm -hmm. so without going around too much in circles here there is a lot of fucked up shit that happens as she walks through the house right to kind of just go through those motions and get the point across but i think the most important thing to take away from the house besides in my opinion that it's the metaphor for alzheimer's itself but what the basement represents which jake was afraid to bring lucy down and it's been like you know scratches scratches upon it it looks weird it was like locked at one point and he just made it known to lucy like i don't want you going down there and she didn't understand why so eventually she ends up going down into the basement mm -hmm. to see for herself and what does she see in the basement she opens the washer and sees nothing but uniforms janitor uniforms for this high school that old jake janitor jake yep. is currently working at in reality and then she wanders off further into the basement and she sees a wall of pictures that apparently lucy painted but we're clear seeing that all of these specific paintings that we thought lucy made were actually by different artists that clearly influenced jake mm -hmm. and then we look on the floor and we see paintings that jake actually made that's right so that's why it kind of, i'm putting that together that these are his passion this is where he hides his passions and ambitions and what he wanted in life but now he's locked them away and they're stuck in the past because he's been stuck with this i wouldn't say burdened but stuck with this responsibility of looking after his parents with this disease that yeah. that's what i think the basement represents yeah no i think i think that's all entirely true and i would add to that as well i think that it is significant that um jake's work he, the paintings that he makes really closely resemble the work of the famous painter yep. who's there up on the wall. Like, they're strikingly similar. And again, I think, you know, in the same way that Jake's ideas of what is a normal, uh, what are normal social behaviors are given to him from movies, and like what, you know, a woman is supposed to be, you know, is probably coming from movies. At one point, it's, we find out a, it's a Robert Zemeckis movie that he's watching, <laughs> that, that old Jake is watching. Uh, in uh, like journal lunchtime at school, uh, it's just this hilariously like cheesy, odd 
a movie involving this uh, this dinner scene where uh, supposedly a... they were talking about earlier as to how him and Lucy met. Right, exactly. And like you said, it's it's painted as this like super sappy like roll your eyes romantic kind of like oh isn't that cute way it's a little meat cute there type of thing right yeah, so exactly it's uh yeah no I, I couldn't help but laugh at that for sure but in any case um in the same way that a lot of jake's uh personality comes from movies and media and the like i think that jake's talent that he has in art is coming from in some sense being heavily influenced and copying others so I think Kaufman is trying to say something there about the nature of identity and the nature of, of humans. I mean, yep. we are all just a mixture of influences from outside reality. Uh, I think that, you know, it's hard to pinpoint the essence of what one person is. I mean, we're all just this internalization of our influences that are yep. outside of us. Yeah, so I think that's another another thing trying to say. I don't know what your thoughts are about. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, again, like, that... <clears throat> that basement scene is a big turning point in, turn, in understanding where we are physically. Because I, I was still kind of in the notion that <clears throat> Lucy was more than just an entity within his mind. Mm. And I think once she started to encounter this stuff that clearly was resembling Jake in reality, I gradually started to understand what she was. And it became more definitive is what I brought earlier up is like the scene that happens near the end that we'll get to kind of further explain and kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of what she represents. But um, without beating it to death too yeah. much, I mean, that's that's essentially kind of how the house plays out. Yeah. You know, we don't want to run in circles. It's kind of hard to just pinpoint how it kind of goes through because it's just it's just a various scenes and yeah. vignettes. Yeah, for sure. We could spend a full episode breaking down each little sub-scene exactly. in each moment, but, uh, you know, there's more to get through and I'm sure nobody wants to listen for five hours to, uh, to this podcast <laughs> as much as they love it I'm sure but anyway so once they leave um, well I just want to jump a little bit on uh, like in, during pretty much the entire movie when, when we're driving um, we have snow it's a snowstorm happening throughout the entire yeah. movie did you have any thoughts on the significance of that of, of, of the, the snow I think what the snow uh, and the blizzard in particular represent is again I think from what we'll allude to later, it's so hard to not jump around. It's just, yeah, absolutely, you know what I mean? for sure. Absolutely. So, um, with the scene alluded to later with the garbage can full of blizzards, uh, mm. it's implied that he's played this whole scenario and scene out a million times in his head, is what that's saying. Yeah. I think the blizzard wasn't always a part of this fantasy, but what the blizzard represents is the Alzheimer's taking over really? his consciousness and Absolutely. his mind frame and his lack of control of getting from point A to point B anymore, right? Yeah. Him, young Jake in his head is lost in the snow at times, but he yeah. can still all of a sudden just like something happens and he's like, oh, right, here's how I get to the school. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I think that's what the blizzard represents. Exactly. I, I think, no, I think you're 100% right. I mean, that's what kind of what snow does, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of conceals everything. It makes everything look the same and... It's easy to get disoriented in the snow and the storm. So I think I think that's one hundred percent it. So and you'll notice that the the storm gets progressively worse, worse. Over, over the course of the movie. And then they had that odd scene when okay, so what happens, folks? No, I'm sorry if we kind of like yeah. so. So they ended up leaving the farmhouse, and what they're doing is they're they're going to beat the blizzard. They're going to drive through the blizzard and try to get back to town where Lucy keeps saying she has to work the next day. So along the way, they make a very odd pit stop, and there's this little middle of nowhere like kind of ice cream shop parlor yeah it's like a walk up to so and i mean it's kind of an insignificant scene 
but it again just kind of cements further in terms of like us focusing on Jake more than Lucy because I think this kind of outlines uh, gives a clear indication of who Jake is as a real person how self-conscious he is how shy he is I think how... spe- specifically from like a, a sexual yes component I think you know, like, I think like even the ice cream itself is meant to represent women represent or like some sort of sexual gratification of some kind and I think that that whole experience with him at the ice cream shop is, is strange he um, with the two girls initially who, who come are very the window, pretty very pretty it's a very awkward encounter they're like, like almost giggling at him and like there's it's nonsensical almost like they're just like not listening and and these are the same two girls I don't know if you remember from earlier in the movie uh, in the when old Jake is walking through the hallway and oh, there's two okay. girls that imitate him and kind of make right. fun of how he moves and, and that's stuff. the other the other girl was a student too she was right oh I didn't didn't pick up on yeah, that I know. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about I know I mean, but uh, yeah it's easy to miss but in any case um he seems to identify with the girl with the rashes a little bit yeah. more, if you recall. Because like, I, I think she, I, I don't think in any way it was any kind of a sexual thing there that that was supposed to represent. I think she was supposed, he was looking at her and saying, that was me in high school. That's exactly right. I was a loner, I was self-conscious, I was shy, I didn't want to express myself. I think that's all she was supposed to represent. And it's like you're saying, like, now that it makes even more sense that she's just a student that just, you know, he probably passes by the hallways every two or three days in his job and just kind of probably recognizes her. Identifies with her. Yeah, and she now is just, that's how she's buried in his subconscious. It's almost similar to how Lucy was, like, created. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think, yeah, so I think that kind of represents, on some level, like, an unsatisfied sexual desires and just and just inability to take life by the horns and just i don't know communicate with others mm. to, uh, kind of thing um yeah it, yeah it's, it's just weird to say because like it's hard to explain with how visually like having it in front of you but it, it's i think it's just meant to imply more subtle things and not be this huge meaningful scene it's just kind of thrown in the middle for mm. us to get to know and make that connection between him and the janitor even more Yes. So yeah. then, yeah. Uh, without kind of dragging that scene out too much, I think uh, we head to the school, which is the third act of the movie, and is kind of where everything culminates, and we get a better idea of what it is we're looking at, where we're going to, and how this connects to Janitor Jake, essentially. So in the storm in the middle of nowhere, Jake just happens to pull up in front of this his old high school where he knows an insanely significant amount of detail about how many rooms there are and stuff. And again, just gradually getting you more and more tucked into the idea that this is the janitor. Like, why else would he know all this stuff? Like, what it, like why would Jake be interested in the school? Who cares? Uh, we pull up outside. He decides to park so we can throw away the blizzards, which is like the oddest thing. And then we're left with a situation where uh, they're in the car... Uh, trying to warm it up before they hit the road again. And it's the only instance, I think, in the movie where Jake actually kisses Lucy. Mm. And what happens is that he kisses her for two to three seconds, and then we get a quick flash and glimpse of janitor Jake kind of peering in on this. So young Jake breaks away and immediately exits the car and says he had to run into the school for something. And all I could think of is that why is Jake leaving here? Like, what what is the point of what we're looking at here? Like, why is he doing this? And I think what it is, is that it's the impent. Like, he's just revolved his life so much around the idea of responsibility greater than him that he's never leaving anything for himself. 
that he can enjoy, that he can admire, that he can take a hold of. Mm. So whenever he gets any glimpse of this, he almost has this sense of, I wouldn't say shame, but kind of guilt, when yeah. he thinks that my responsibility is the school. That's what I got to do. That's my job. I'm the one looking after this. And I don't have to, I shouldn't, that's not I shouldn't, I shouldn't, but I, he makes that as an excuse for not having time to live otherwise and enjoy life. I think it's that. I think it could be guilt. I think it's also maybe just genuine discomfort with being too close to people. Yep. I think he maybe feels in some way unequipped to get too close to people because that's the way he spent his entire life. And with the exception of his, I mean, I guess there was intimacy with his mother on some level. Um, but aside from that, we don't get the sense there's much in the way of intimacy in his life. So, no. even, so probably even in his own fantasies, even though it's not real, when it's when he imagines having... You know, kissing a woman and having close physical interactions, he has this aversion to it, and his desire is to want to run away. So I think you're right; it's probably guilt, but also just genuine discomfort yeah. because he feels unequipped. He doesn't have the experience. Exactly. You know, and I think what happens then is that Lucy, you know, we're we're kind of we're at the point where we're trying to put everything together and understand things, and Lucy is just as confused as us and is trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And basically, the the picture that's painted right now. Is I the the way I felt watching all of this to this point is it's almost like a bad dream where you're trying to dial a number or you're trying to get to a certain location but you can never do it. There's something always like getting in the way of you accomplishing that goal, mm -hmm. and I feel like that's what Cotham is trying to get you to feel like while watching all of this. And, and arguably, maybe one of the horror elements that yeah. comes up with this as well, this feeling of disorientation exactly. that you share with Lucy, this feeling of being lost and amazed, I suppose, in, in a sense, right? Yep, exactly. Um, and, and then we might as well just jump to the hallway scene where Lucy leaves the car and was like, okay, fuck this. I'm going to go into the school and figure out what is going on here. Where is Jake? And that's where she eventually comes face-to-face -face with Janitor Jake. And I think... To me, this little scene here is the tell-all of what's going on and what Lucy is. Mm -hmm. And she expresses to us, the audience, how she was created and why she exists in the first place. Yeah. Through that model. I kind of I alluded to earlier where it's, it's a very strange, disjuncted kind of monologue, just kind of asking who he is, why he's here. And then she starts getting into... It's kind of one-sided, too. Like, Janet Jake's not saying anything. She's talking to herself, almost, mm -hmm. and explaining what she is. So, putting two and two together, she kind of alludes to the fact that she has most likely been created from Jake's subcon subconscious, I'm sorry, from literally just seeing some woman in a bar somewhere. And this is kind of his fantasy and movie-esque romance that he wants is mm. what we're led to believe so lucy doesn't actually exist in reality she doesn't in some form her name could be anything and she could actually who knows what her personality is like but this is lucy in his head yeah so like that's where i get from that and then we kind of span into <laughs> random dance scene which in my opinion expresses this because what that is as silly as it is it's an interpretive dance outlining the struggle between reality yes. and expectation because it's the janitor fighting with the act young jake That's you know what i mean absolutely exactly right and um yeah and i think th this um it, what's what's interesting too we, we talked about how uh, a, a lot of what jake is comes from movies but also memories but a lot of his day-to-day -day life in the school kind of seeps in there as well a lot of the observations and things that he sees around the school kind of seep into the narrative with young Jake and Lucy. Yep. And one of those things uh, is this kind of musical theater uh, Right, because I forgot in the first car ride, 
he goes through the fact of how obsessed he is with musicals. Exactly. It's one of the big things he's mentioning. Exactly. So when we look at that that sequence with this um, this dance number between... And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's like this... Um, so just to, for those that haven't seen it, the way the scene occurs, you have young Jake and Lucy sort of standing in the hallway, but then there's the there's like these versions of them kind of approach them from behind. It's like a better looking yeah, version of young Jake. Exactly. It's like Hollywood versions of what they would ex- he would expect them to look like, right? Exactly, exactly. And then like exactly as Scott said, they, they kind of go through this almost uh, musical theater um uh, interpretation of, I guess, the relationship between Lucy and Jake, and and then this struggle in which uh, old this again, uh, it's like a Hollywood version yep. of old Jake old coming Jake. in, uh, and then it's it's old Jake who stabs young Jake, kills him, and as you said, you, that means basically that old Jake uh, represents reality and yep. he's uh, kind of prevailing over the fantasy. Exactly. But then exactly. and uh, but again, I think it's significant. As well, this idea that everything is this artifice, is this artificial version, this like even more artificial version of even the fantasy that he had. Now it's kind of, now it's kind of taken on this like additional like Hollywood artifice. So while this kind of fantasy is going on in the hallway, we have as well this sort of these these shots of old Jake. And it's clear that he is deteriorating and, and yep. unraveling. Is this when he's in, is this when he's in the truck? Right. So he's so he goes out into the truck. I think he I think he's done his shift for the yeah. evening or whatever. He's he's basically working the night shift and just cl- finishing up, cleaning the school and stuff. So I I think per- personally like this. I know there's a very important scene preceding this, and it's going to tie everything up. But I think this scene here is the most important scene. In terms of tying in the theme I was discussing earlier with the pigs in the barn, mm. with the reality of what Jake's life is like. So, again, I think I kind of alluded to it earlier, basically just saying how the whole theme and story of what they were trying to say about the pigs being eaten alive gradually without any control over because they can't escape the barn, and this is the existence they're chosen to live in, is that when they were first telling that, they were kind of rolling their eyes and the way it was represented is that, oh, we as humans don't need to be confined that way. We can go out and we don't, we don't have these walls of structure that we don't. We can live our life the way we want. But we've come to learn now through getting the notion of Alzheimer's and dementia and mental illness and how especially it's hereditary that the fact that Jake himself is like the pig in a sense that he, can, he hasn't chose to live his life and he's accepted the fact, unfortunately, that he's been confined into this box and is gradually being eaten alive by Alzheimer's or dementia rather than maggots from the pig. It gets so to the fact that it's trying to get that on the nose that while Jake is literally in the truck, like, dressing down out of just hysteria, he looks out the window and what does he see? A fucking pig with maggots eating <laughs> eating it alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the pig, he follows the pig outside the truck in the snow naked and i think it might it sounds very silly and it's very strange to see and 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 the pig is actually talking to him explaining to him like yo the sooner you accept this the way it is you can you can enjoy life you know what i mean like you're gonna get this and it's it's inevitable unfortunately the way your life's gonna play out but you can enjoy life is the way the pig was trying to say this meanwhile jake is trailing behind the pig naked naked. 
following the pig. And I think literally what that's supposed to say, rather than just like all this, you know, symbolism and stuff, uh, literally that's him dying from dementia. That's him wandering out clueless into the cold and most likely dying in the parking lot somewhere. I think that's what's happening literally. And then once that's done, we can go into the final scene here which I think I'd like John to kind of just walk through in terms of what he feels. Because it's, again, it's kind of a flip of a 180 of what we just looked at in reality. And now after that reality is kind of laid out, what is it, This we're going back into the subconscious of right. what Jake wants the ending to be. Yeah, no, I, I think you summarized that well. And I think your, I think your analysis of what's going on there is correct. So after we have this interaction with, with, with this animated pig and, and uh, older Jake, like I said, we go into this scene, we're in an auditorium, maybe the school auditorium. Yeah, I think it's a school, school auditorium. auditorium. Yeah. In any case, it's um, Jake standing on the stage, he's standing at this podium, behind him is the backdrop for, I think it's assumed to be Oklahoma, which is the, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, this is the show that they're rehearsing at the same time right. uh, that, the, that the movie is, is going on. Um, so that's happening in the background, and then you have in the crowd these familiar faces. You have Lucy out there in the crowd, and you have uh, Jake's aged himself too. Yeah, Jake. That's right. Jake has aged himself. You know, everybody there is kind of like elderly. That's there. We see the girls from the ice cream shop are there in the crowd. We get the sense that in the crowd, this is like people that just Jake has wandered known. through life and wandered, somewhat known. Somewhat known, exactly. Just like society at large, yep. people that he's known. St- on the stage, Jake is there. He has this Nobel Prize seemingly around his neck. Again, it's the backdrop for Oklahoma. Very, very surreal. But in any case, it's... Uh, and then on stage, you have his his mother, who's right. kind of like, almost like a... Gra- I don't know. I've never seen Oklahoma, but I don't know if the mother is meant to look like That's a, a good character point. I never, from there. I never thought about that. I don't know, but she's made up to look sort of like a grandmother. And is the father on stage as well? The father's in the audience. In the audience. I believe. Right. So in any case, he uh, goes on, Jake goes from there to kind of give this speech, sort of thanking everyone for this award that he's received, and we get the sense the award is this, like, recognition for everything that he's done. Um, And he says, you know, I have you to thank for everything, for everyone. Um, And then from there, he goes on to sing this, this... I thought it was a pretty moving moment, actually, to sing this song from Oklahoma. I can't remember the name of it, but it is from Oklahoma. It is. I was wondering about that, too. Is it? So, yeah, it is. I looked it up. So, But essentially, the gist of it is that, uh, you know, at in the night, in the evenings, uh, he's able to kind of go into this fantasy world and have all the things that he doesn't have in the in the conscious world. So he's, you know, he has the woman of his dreams and his various desires are met. After he gives this movie musical performance, everyone stands up, applauds him. Then uh, we have the, the final scene of the movie. The, the, the movie, the, the scene of, of, of Jake standing on the stage, it sort of fades to blue. And then all of a sudden we realize this is the blue sky uh, outside the high school the next morning. Pans down and we see Jake's car, his truck, fully covered in snow. I think that's meant to suggest that... Jake yeah. has actually died. He has that, actually died. That exactly. Jake probably died from, you know, being outside, from hypothermia, dying in the cold. And in fact, Lucy, when she initially got out of the car, she even said herself, well, you know, if I die from hypothermia, 
um, is not a bad way to go. This is before she actually oh, went yeah. into the school. Yep, yep. So, you know, again, that's probably a little bit of... Um, foreshadowing. A bit of foreshadowing or whatever, whatever. So, in any case, I think with that scene, when he's in the auditorium and he's singing and he's everyone's applauding him and the like, I think this and is... And also important to yeah. know, I don't, I don't know if you noticed it as well, yeah. but it's like going back to the movie-esqueness of everything and the mm. Hollywoodized... Pers- it's almost like this artificial, deliberately artificial look to things to kind of hammer home the fact that this is supposed to be like almost like a movie itself. And so if you look through the audience and as well as Jake, uh, they're all fake old. It's all Do like you know terrible what I mean? makeup. Like it's it looks, all, yes. and like their faces are fake old, but their bodies are completely normal. They're not wrinkled or anything. So it's like, they clearly went out of their way to make it look artificial, that they're mm. not actually old. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Kind of playing into the theme of what you're saying is like how he yeah. wanted this Hollywood-esque ending to his life. Yeah, so it, it's a very heartbreaking ending. I, it I, is. I, I think there's a couple of things you can say about it, or many things that can be said about it, but a couple of things that, that occurred to me. You know, number one, this uh, Jake is somebody, as you said, he's probably gone through life being very selfless. He helped his parents with their own dementia. He's somebody that... It was the subject of ridicule, it seems like, as a janitor at work, he's made fun of by those young girls, and God knows the number of interactions that happened where he was made fun of behind his back, and he probably didn't assert himself or challenge them, he just kind of took it or what have you. And obviously, you know, being a janitor, I can only assume, is probably a bit of a thankless job, you know, going around, cleaning up after people, um, you know, probably not receiving a ton of respect. So this moment at the end is... This, this this thank you, this approval is something that he's probably pined uh, for for his, his whole life. Yeah. Um, and we get the sense, too, like, just to go back to the, the scenes with the, with, with, with the house, um, with, his, with his family. I mean, his father doesn't seem to give him a, a ton of approval as, as a child. He kind of under, like, his father never really seemed to understand art. Yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of one thing I was going to point out earlier, too, when we were try not to stick too much on the dinner scene and stuff yeah. but I found the exact same thing is that there was constant little picks and digs from mom yeah. and dad saying like oh Jake's a bright boy <laughs> but Jake could never you know really get along yeah. with girls but was never one of the smartest he yeah. just worked hard yeah. which is which is a dig right which yeah. is a real dig at him you know <laughs> exactly. not the smartest but he worked hard which is impressive you know and that's what kind of developed his self-consciousness right yeah. and his sense of like his yeah. lack of confidence so, I mean, yeah, that, that is, that's the end of the movie to kind of, like, tie it up. Because yeah. from there, it's so easy to bounce back and forth throughout the movie to see, like, what it is we were kind of talking about. But that's kind of why we were saying earlier how this is a very difficult movie from a linear standpoint to go through. And I think we did a pretty good job given the given what we got to work with here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like you know, we're... Uh new to the podcast game and I think like this is a movie that like I said like defies a linear explanation so I think you know I think we did our best to try to uh, to, to capture what this movie is all about but one more thing that I will quickly say about it I think that you know there's something very heartbreaking as well I mean I think we can look at the specifics about you know um, Jake's death there at the end about how he never received the attention and the thanks that he always wanted to achieve but also yeah. at the same time I think that it speaks to something that we all would want at the end of our life, which is a big send off and a big, you know, thank you for you know everything that you've done. Which exactly. is not how people go out. People no. go out in a very quiet, typically in a very quiet, lonely way. Yep. You know, on our own, be it in a hospital bed or your home or whatever. A lot of your loved ones are gone. So, 
you know, we can look at Jake's fantasies as being very bizarre, very strange, be very foreign, but I think there is something almost relatable about that final fantasy of everyone wanting to say thank you to you at the end. And, and all sen- basically everyone's sending you off and giving yeah. you your little do- ovation you think you... You, you know what reminded me of? I don't know if you've seen this movie. Have you seen Big Fish? Yeah, the one with the, uh, Tim Burton, right? Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Same thing when he's walking, uh, walking away from the house in the water. In the water, right, remember that right. the father is being sent off down the river, yes. and everybody that he had discussed throughout, in his, the, movie, throughout right. the movie is there to send him off. Which it is that kind of vibe. You're right. Yeah. It's the it, yeah, and that's 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 actually a pretty good like you know tie in between two of those. Yeah, for sure. But in any case, um, like yeah, we're wrapping it up here. But uh, I don't know if you wanted to give your your uh, rating or summary or yeah like. yeah okay let, let me let me first give my little summary of it all um this movie was the definition of challenging i think uh going into it, it's it's not as it's not as bad for me because going into it i knew what kaufman's all about i i i need i know what his approach is so none of this shocked me i went in with a certain perspective in terms of how this narrative can go so like the shifts it took didn't take me out of it as it did probably other people like if someone walked into this blindly didn't know who made it and stuff i can see someone being like what the fuck am i watching here (laughs) but just from my background of understanding who's at the helm here uh it didn't shock it didn't it didn't confuse me as much as i thought it would as as hard as as i hope as we were able to kind of like summarize for you folks how this kind of how this kind of played out it didn't shock me or confuse me but it was very challenging to kind of pay attention to it. You really did have to mm. put your hat on and pay attention to this guy when you're walking through it. So I was a little, in the midst of the third act, I was getting a little uh, overwhelmed and annoyed in certain deliveries and some of the conversations that were having were getting a little much for me. But I really respect the climax, the third act, and the payout of what is trying to be said here. I think he hit the nail on the head in terms of how he wanted this to end. And I think that outweighed my frustrations in some of the second act scenes. So I give this a 7 out of 10 in terms of, again, a lot of it's due to respect. And it's a, as strange a movie as it is, it, it's like, and it's, as much as it's owed a rewatch, I can't picture honestly rewatching this for a while because it's, it's a very melancholy experience. Mm. And, and like as you kind of alluded to there, John, it's very kind of a dour ending on it all. But... I would recommend this to anyone who's into this surrealistic approach to filmmaking. Anyone who's a David Lynch fan, anyone who's you know looking to looking for something different. And I think it has just enough elements of dread and horror that I can justify us talking about it here today. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I can't say I particularly enjoyed watching the movie. I, I will say that um, outright. However, I don't. Th- think that you necessarily uh, <laughs> need to enjoy all forms of art on that very sort of surface level in order to appreciate them and, like you said, respect on what's going on there. I also think that this is a movie that would reward um, many rewatches, many, many rewatches. Um, like as Scott said, I'm probably not going to rewatch it for a while because it is a very... Um, challenging watch and it is bleak and it's it's difficult to get through it um another thing about it uh that i found tough was just simply staying engaged in some ways yeah with, with the, the car the car drive scenes really were meandering at times especially the yeah. second drive home that's the part i really tried uh, it really started to wear on me and yeah. i think the point of the scene was to be like that because i yeah. think 
throughout the movie, they're trying, they're trying to show you the breaking down of a relationship and how the little habits and little nuances we have of a relationship is what kind of wears on people. And I think that's what a lot of the... Because irrit- it was a constant sense of irritation in that scene. And I think that's what it's trying to say. Yeah. But as a viewer, if that's what he's trying to say or not, as a viewer, it makes it very difficult to sit through that. Because it's like 20 minutes in the car, man, on the way out. So. Yeah. I also feel like, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so, I mean, it's the kind of thing, it's, it's, it's hard to stay engaged with the conversation, man. And because it's so often, will just jump around from topic to topic. It's not like a clear, narrative, like uh, linear conversation. Um, but I also feel like this movie is just so dense with various references. I, don't, I can't tell you how many allusions are made to different films and different authors and you know artists that we mentioned uh, before. And I think that it's one of those movies that if I did like a little bit of research and I feel like learned a little bit more about the work that's being referenced, I probably would have like a greater appreciation for it. Um, so I'd be curious, like down the line, uh, if I'd be kind of you know do a little bit of homework, you know, if I came back to that movie, what that experience would be like watching it. Like I said, from from the outset of talking about this movie, though, I am a huge fan of Kaufman's work. I'm always a bit bemused by it. I find it uh, challenging, fascinating, even if I don't feel like I fully grasp what its nature is. But like I said, I feel like me and Scott have a decent handle on at least some of the things that Kaufman is trying to say. So uh, in any case, I would give, yeah, similar to Scott's rating, I'd probably give it a, uh, you know, I'd say maybe like a six, six and a half out of ten, uh, simply because I didn't particularly enjoy it <laughs> going through and watching it, uh, but at the same time I found it fascinating, and I feel like it's the kind of movie that uh, will reward uh, future consideration and future rewatches. Perfect, man. Uh, yeah, okay, guys, so that, that, that wraps up two of these heavy hitters here today. We had... I'm surprised we had a lot to say about both of these films, which again, as we've been alluding to in all our episodes so far, is how diverse it is to jump from like one film to the other. Just two completely different discussions in terms of how we're framing it and how we're going about it, how we even attack it just individually. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed... I, I'm kind of with you. It's funny about the last one. It's like, I enjoyed talking about it more than experiencing it. Is best way to kind of wrap up that movie. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like either way, I'd recommend either movie to, especially I Saw the Devil, which I, I think is a masterpiece. But I, I would give, uh, I would recommend anyone to give them thinking of ending things a shot in terms of you just want to look, look for something outside the box. So, all right, John, are you ready to spin that wheel? Let's, Let's do this. Let's go. Spin it. What is John gonna pick from? Body. <laughs> Oh dear, I'm not even sure I know what that is. But. John has to pick a body horror movie. Oh, that's going to be so fucked up to discuss. So, okay, just to clarify, so when we're talking about body horror, we're talking, how would you define that genre in general, so I'm uh, clear? To, to kind of pin, pigeonhole it is, basically, it's, an, it's due to a lot of practical effects where it's a graphic movie where in sense there's violence, but it's the breakdown of the human body in certain practical forms kind of uh, i don't want to throw out suggestions i don't want to give you off but have you mm-hmm. ever have you ever heard the expression cronenbergism yes that's body horror i see do you understand what i I'm know saying? What you, yeah yes i do so but just like it deals with a lot of uh, deformities of the human body in some shape or form yes yeah. and given that category in terms of like how it can be broadened you can go a number of different avenues and justify why you made a certain pick mm. but that is is like 
in terms of like the horror community, if you were to just say that, everyone's like, oh, body horror. Like that, that's the framework of it. But you know, that again, like that can go outside of that realm and could definitely be kind of uh, a number of suggestions you can go in that route. All right, so let's see what Scott's gonna pick. Oh, get that wheel spin. I really spin that. Spun that. Good lord. Monster movies. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Monster movies. All right. Fuck yeah. So, John got body horror. Scott got monster movies. Cool. So those are going to be our picks for next episode. All right, man. So I guess we're going to wrap things up now, folks, for this evening. So just wanted to let you all know that you can follow us on Instagram at the Spooky Newfies, where we'll be posting regularly with updates on episode details, host picks, bonus content. Uh, we're also available on all podcast platforms, so we greatly appreciate if you folks leave us a rating review on the Apple Podcast uh, platform, which will help us immensely in gaining even more listeners than yourselves. Uh, so on that note, we'll see you all next episode in two weeks' time where we'll be discussing uh, a body horror film chosen by John and a monster movie chosen by Scott. In the meantime, folks, keep it spooky. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you.